0: on this table isn't human. Its cries are human. Do you know what it is, what I began with? No. An animal. Well, we may as well discuss this frankly, now that you know the fact. I wanted to prove how completely she was a woman. (laughs) I'm not beaten. (laughs) Get everything ready. For what? This time I'll burn out all the animal in (laughs) our. I'll make her completely human. No, no.
1: Welcome to the Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. Joining me once again is Mr. Tim Luz. You mutinous dog, man. Also joining us is Mr. Ian Bronnell. Are we not men? We are kicking off our spooktacular coverage with Eerie C. Kenton's 1932 adaptation of H.G. Wells' 1896 book, The Island of Dr. Moreau. Here it is called The Island of Lost Souls, and stars Charles Lawton as Moreau, a mad scientist who works to bend the will of nature to suit his needs. He works to create a race of human-animal hybrids on his mysterious island, which is disturbed by Edward Parker and Ruth Thomas. Of course, we will be spoiling things as we go along, so if you don't want any of this or any other version of Dr. Moreau ruined for you, turn off the podcast podcast. Go watch all of them, and then come on back after you've seen them. We will still be here. So, Tim, when was the first time you saw Island of Lost Souls, and what did you think? I actually have the exact
2: date written down. It was October 15, 2009. I remember because this is one of those movies I had wanted to see for years. And for whatever reason, wherever I was, it was never on TV. It was very hard to find on video. I don't know if that's kind of um, some sort of effect of all the various censorship of it over the years, but I just could never find it until finally I, when I was doing my— try to see a new horror movie every day of October one year, I encountered this on the internet and saw it, and it did not disappoint. After the years of build-up and having seen various forms of this story, some really good, some with Marlon Brando, I really dug this. I was very surprised. As was much like watching Freaks for the first time. I was surprised by how much, even for a pre-code movie, they got away with in this film. Even if some of it's oblique and by implication, there's a lot of themes here. It's like, wow, I can't believe they did that. And it's still really effective, still really, really creepy, even watching it to this day. And Ian, how about yourself?
3: I had a rather backwards journey into this film. I think I've always known the story, but I don't know if that's just because it's one of those stories that's in the collective Western conscious and you're just born with it. Or possibly my father read it to me as a bedtime story. I was lucky enough to have one of those dads who read novels to his kids uh, when they were little and not, you know, just Wind in the Willows, but like... Rudyard Kipling and John Lowen Stevenson and things like that. So it's possible, although it is kind of creepy for a kid. But then in the eighties, I was a big fan of Devo and I had no idea that Devo drew so much inspiration from this movie until I got the criterion disc like 20, 30, 40 years later. And in the 90s, I was a big fan of the Irish hip-hop band House of Pain, and I did know that that was a reference uh, specifically to the Burt Lancaster version. I had never seen the Burt Lancaster version, but there's a sample in there, and Burt Lancaster has a very specific way of speaking, so I figured, like... Oh, I gotta see that movie someday. But still, the first film version of this I saw was the Marlon Brando version in the nineties, which I did like. I saw it in the theater and I liked it. Um, years later, I saw the, I ran the Burt Lancaster version for this um, maritime movie marathon I used to program with some friends of mine. And it wasn't till the Criterion disc came out that I finally saw Island of Lost Souls and all the great supplemental material that's on there. And then. Just a couple of years ago, I had the privilege of seeing it on 35 millimeter on a gorgeous studio print uh, at the Exhumed Films Horathon, I think maybe 2018 or 19. And then I went out and finally bought a copy of the book and read it. So a, a circuitous journey, but it all comes out in the wash because I really like all the versions of this story, but I obviously think this is the best movie.
1: It must have looked glorious on 35 millimeter because I've only ever seen this on video, as in Blu ray slash DVD and television. I think my first experience was through a TV version of it or TV broadcast of it, but to see it on the big screen, that must have been awesome.
3: Yeah, it was great. And it was like, you know, the fourth movie into a 24 hour marathon. So we were all still very fresh.
2: I actually got to see it at the uh, the Boston 24-hour sci-fi marathon a couple of years ago. They had a pretty nice print. And I'll admit, it's with that one, you get a lot of hipsters who like to laugh at the old movies. And I love how this one, the longer it went on, the quieter they got. All of a sudden, their snickering and jokes just disappeared by the end of the movie.
3: Yeah, I don't go to that sci-fi marathon anymore because of that. But the Exhumed, they, they crack the whip, man. They're like Moreau. If you talk during any of those movies, they will escort you out. Which is great. But actually, I worked on a film one time with a guy who, he was a horror movie director. He hated black and white movies. He had nothing but shit talk for black and white movies. He complained about them all. The only one he ever said he liked was this one. He was like, but have you seen that Charles Lawton, Island of Lost Souls? Like, that's a great movie. So I do think even people who are dismissive of old movies have a hard time. They might think at the beginning it's a little cheesy or slow or whatever, but boy, the second Lawton's on there... You got to shut up and just let the man go because it's fantastic.
1: What kind of human animal hybrid doesn't like black and white films?
2: Come on, we all know these people. They're out there. (sighs) Unfortunately, yeah, it's true. It's horrifying, but it's true. They're probably not listening to this show, but
3: (laughs) they're definitely out there.
2: (laughs) No, they'll just complain about it on, like, you know, the iTunes reviews.
1: Right. There you go. There you go. Yeah. Especially if we start to get into politics. So be careful, because we don't want to talk about all the metaphors that are behind this movie and the, and the source text or anything. Not so. to
2: speak politics on podcasts. That is
3: the law. <laughs> are <laughs> we not men? <laughs> <laughs> no, we are men. That's the problem.
1: Carl Striss's cinematography is just awesome. And even seeing it on the smaller screen to see the shadows and the once they get onto the island, the way that the trees are and to see like, you know, beast people kind of hiding on the sides and stuff. Oh, it's it's terrific. But I can't imagine seeing it on a big screen and catch all of those details. I'm very jealous of you, too.
3: Uh, listening to the commentary track, uh, it was interesting to learn that all the fog in the movie was real fog and not, like, fake fog. I thought that was kind of fascinating. struce also shot, uh, like, Sign of the Cross and, uh, I don't know, so many other good movies. I'm trying to think. I mean, his, you recognize his uh, credit. Oh, Frenchman's Creek. That was another one that uh, is a color film and quite beautiful. Didn't he work with Dreyer as well? I know he shot he shot the silent version of Ben-Hur. Uh, is really famous for that, and shot um Sunrise or co or like was one of two DPs on Sunrise, but yeah, Murnau, not Dryer. Okay, yeah, it yeah. yeah. goes way back. S- yeah.
1: Sorry, I get my Murnau and my Dryer mixed up sometimes. So my bad.
2: Yeah, sunrise is one of my favorites visually, and I recognize a lot of that here. Some of the camera moves, like that beautiful shot when Ruth is going to the bulletin board to see the list of survivors, and it pulls back with her and moves with her as she walks away dejected, or that incredible camera shot of Parker sitting, reading a book, and the camera moves over him to just the edge of the pool, and we just see Lotus' feet running around until she comes around, and it pulls back to frame the two of them. Just beautiful, smooth camera shots in this that I feel like were a little uncharacteristic of that time.
1: Well, even the first time that you see Moreau and that he's at a distance and you're looking down at him, but that's like the only time where he's in a powerless type of framing. Everything else, it's like shooting up or you know just him very large in the frame. You get those awesome shots of the camera pushing in. There's the one where it's like pushing in on one of the beast creatures and then it pushes in on Lawton in the return shot. Really nice stuff.
2: There's some almost Jonathan Demme kind of qualities to some of the scenes like that. Like when Parker is confronting Moreau, and it's just the two characters looking straight on camera until Parker punches him. And it's really unsettling the way that Moreau just slowly leans into camera as he's talking about what he planned for him.
3: It starts with Parker looking at him, and then Moreau matches his gaze, and the ca- the editing camera work does the same thing. And-, and Moreau's like, oh, you think you can stare down a camera? I'm Charles Lawton, dude. Like, I'm, g- I'm going to do it ten times better. So when the punch comes, it's like a relief to the audience. Like, oh, thank God, we're out of
1: that close-up. <laughs> yeah. Well, and thank goodness that Richard Arlen as Edward Parker can act pretty darn well. Like, everybody else, I mean, you've got Charles Lawton, front and center, Dr. Moreau, Bella the ghosty, kind of hidden in here. He only really has two scenes, but whenever he's on screen, he's amazing as the sayer of the law, but it's so much Richard Arlen as the shipwreck survivor, our main character, AKA Prendick from the book. Uh, I don't think that they ever call him Prendick in any of the adaptations. They always change his name to something else. It's like Parker or Douglas or whatever it is, but they always have to change his name for whatever reason.
2: Yeah, I've never understood that. I don't know why. I don't know if the pre- the dick part leads to too much humor. I don't know. But
3: <laughs> yeah, I wonder if yeah, Prendick it may just be an awkward name. But um, it doesn't roll Charles off my Lawton, tongue. It's like slight, Well, but does it roll off uh, Charles Lawton's tongue? I think he would love to address someone as Mister Prendick. But Parker is a part that could be so
2: kind of bland and boring. And yeah, Arlen does a good job of kind of the the lingering moral disgust at Moreau, but also kind of self-disgust. Like, after he kisses Loda and realizes what she is, and he's angry at Moreau, but he's also just kind of like, oh, what did I just do? This is, And on top of that, I also nearly cheated on my fiancé.
3: That's where you really feel like, oh, actually, this is a good performance, because I think the close-up right after he kisses her for the first time, you're just fascinated what's going on in his mind. Did he taste something? Did he sense something? Is it guilt? Is it, like... It's probably a series of things and he can't put his finger on it. And that's all in one, like, you know, four second beat uh, that that he does, which is really, you know, (laughs) it, it stops you, you know, like you kind of freeze up.
2: Or the scene with the captain on the boat where at first he's sort of amused by the captain. And as the scene goes on, you can see him getting more and more unhappy with him until he finally punches Mling. And it's like, all right, that's it. And you see how incredibly angry he is in that moment.
3: I love those scenes on the boat. The other movies, the other versions of the film don't focus on the boat so much. I mean, the 70s version doesn't even have the boat, barely. And there's something really great about the film in terms of its location. Like, it doesn't feel like it's on sets, like a lot of uh, universal horror movies, beautiful sets. But there is something sort of otherworldly about the fact that this is all shot in exteriors on Catalina Island and a ranch and... The boat journey, just like with King Kong, the fact that you have to travel, that the protagonist has to travel to this weird place, just gives it a much creepier, otherworldly feeling. Yeah,
1: that was one thing I've noticed with all of the adaptations, is just how long it takes you to get introduced to different things. To Montgomery, who is Moreau's right hand, to Moreau himself to the actual beast people. Every single movie handles it slightly differently. And then you compare that versus the book where again, it's like they, he hears about Moreau for a long, long time before he actually sees Moreau. And it's even longer until we hear Moreau speak. I'm kind of glad that they have him so early in this one because it just sets you up much earlier. I mean, of course this movie is what 70 some minutes long. It's not that long of a film. And It's good to introduce Lawton pretty early on. I mean, I think it's, what, within 10 minutes of the opening? But yeah, the stuff on the boat is very fascinating, especially getting the drunk captain, which I think this is the only time where we see the drunk captain. He's right out of the book, and having Maling here as well, yeah, very important to have him on the boat and to have parker in this case experience like who is this guy what is this guy and every single time no matter what if it's the book or whether it's the adaptations parker pendrick always gets this stuff mixed up and he's always just like oh uh what what race are these people or you're you're turning humans into animals and it's like no no uh actually reverse
3: that they do add one scene with the with the drunk uh doc uh captain later on right i mean that's not in the book when we because we don't we don't follow parker's wife you know that's a very that's an obviously a very hollywood adaptation thing where it's like well we need the love interest b story so we're going back to england and so then the captain does come back and get uh, sort of uh, dressed down by his superior um as part of that whole sort of story of the rescue as it were that is not part of the book
1: yeah, I don't know if Pendrick even has, or Prendick even has a, a a wife or a girlfriend or anything. He's just, we stick with him. We never leave the island until he leaves the island at the very end of the book, spoilers, but just as him. And it feels very much like he has no one at home. He's not an outcast like Montgomery and Moreau are, but he's not like pining for his fiance when he's, On the island, he's just like, he's gone for a year. Nobody seems to really care.
2: The scenes on the boat are important also for contrast because once we get onto Moreau's Island, it is so oppressive and closed in. Even the exteriors with the vines and the trees and the set design and the bars and everything, you just feel like you're in a cage. And so the few times that we see the boat in the beginning and then when we cut back to Ruth on the mainland, it's our kind of one bit of relief we get for the rest of the movie. We're just squeezed in there on that island and it's so effective because of that.
1: I'm really glad that Parker, he holds this film together, a lot of it. I mean, of course, Moreau is, you know, Lawton is the star, but he could have been as bland as like Bruce Cabot as Jack Driscoll. I never really got into that character in uh, King Kong. I was much more about Anne Darrow and Carl Denham. Sometimes I forget that Driscoll even exists until I think about the dude playing him later on, you know, that was like, Oh, okay. Well, and that's such a different interpretation of that character to have Jeff Bridges there versus like Bruce Cabot, all American man type of thing. And I, I was afraid that this Parker was going to be gee, Willikers. And, you know, I love baseball or any of those kind of things, but instead he's properly horrified. I mean, one of the first times we see him, he's screaming out in nightmares, I guess, uh, on the boat and it's Montgomery who's comforting him and kind of talking him down a little bit, but yeah, he's messed up at the beginning and then we get to see how he reacts to all of these things. And he has good reactions because that was one thing as I watch these adaptations It's like, if I saw these beast people, I'd probably have some really extreme reactions. And I'm glad that he kind of helps us take us there. It's not just, Oh, isn't that interesting?
2: It does go a little bit to the book where it's almost more of an uncanny thing of like, oh, it looks like a person, but there's something a little weird about it. But here, if you saw them, it's like, no, there's something wrong. I'm going to run. No, thank you. (laughs) Also with Richard Arlen, all I can think of is wings and all the incredible stunt work that he kind of had to shoot as an actor flying. Yeah. And I always have huge admiration for him for that. And I feel like he brings a little that here with this. This is the kind of guy who's seen stuff.
1: Yeah, that commentary track in the criterion is really interesting insofar as the making of the film. He doesn't really go into the thematics or interpreting anything, but he's right there telling you exactly how much money every single freaking person in the yeah, movie is so makes.
3: Which gets tragic I when I have ever heard a commentary track where they list the salaries of all the players. Like when it gets to Lugosi, it's just tragic. <laughs> Oh, yeah. I mean, I think that's why they do it is to show like, yeah, the Panther woman, who was a total unknown contest winner, was paid more than Bella Lugosi. Bella Lugosi, man, just can't catch a break ever. And it shows uh, who
2: Arlen was that, according to the commentary, he got more than Lawton. So, I mean, he was definitely established in Hollywood and known as a leading man because of that.
1: Because of the small, small role of the Legosi, I was convinced for the longest time that this was pre-Dracula. And, you know, of course, Dracula put him on the map only to realize, no, this is after Dracula. And he had lost all of his Dracula money pretty much already. So the poor guy made $850 for the scenes that he's in. And he is in some of the thickest makeup I've seen. Of course, like the makeup in this movie is incredible to look at all of these beast people and especially to see the stills of them and that was one thing I really liked on the Criterion Disc as well is to see the stills because I didn't necessarily catch all of the beast people's features. To see that one creature where it looked like a cheetah was almost coming out of his face. I was like, oh wow, that's really cool. That one freaked me out.
2: I wonder if some of these they were like, yeah, you can't show that on screen. Put it in the background somewhere, but that cannot be up front end screen.
1: That's going to be a little too much for audiences when they have the creatures walking and you see the hoof of the one person like it's a hoof and a foot and I'm like oh wow I didn't expect that that's very uncanny to me
3: Lugosi has one of the thickest accents in hollywood as well as you know the thick makeup so you it's he's unmistakable you know you you know it's him that very first shot of him the close up when he's got that lascivious look on his face i mean it's it's great i mean he's acting through some of the the most hair I think I've ever seen attached to a person's face. I mean, you still, you know, you can know exactly what's going on in his mind.
2: Unmet. How he delivers that line. His is the house of pain. You know, there's just so much memory there of the horrible stuff this character went through in there.
1: Yeah, and those Beast people, I mean, so many of them um, I didn't realize were wrestlers, and that's why they have the, the kind of odd big builds that they have. And as I'm looking at them, I'm just like, oh, yeah, I guess like now or, well, a few years ago, like somebody like George the Animal Steel with all the body hair and stuff, because these guys, some of them have less body hair than I have, but most of them have actually a little bit more, which is even scarier.
2: I think it kind of goes to today where you still get wrestlers and large actors, you know, playing suit suit actors for monsters and things like that. It's kind of a natural place to go to.
3: Uh, Well, speaking of suit actors, the other thing that was really interesting on the commentary was talking about this guy, Charles Gamora, uh, who plays the monkey in the boat scenes. And uh, they they talk about it a little on the criterion. But I went and just like looked up this guy because he had like a 40 year career, almost exclusively playing gorillas in a suit that, or in suits that he built himself. So he was like this very diminutive Filipino guy who like stowed away on a boat and went to Hollywood right as the film industry was getting built. And he Figured, like, this is my niche. I'm going to, like, make the most convincing-looking gorilla suit and be a very convincing gorilla. And he was in everything. He's in this and Sign of the Cross, playing these very, you know... Sign of the Cross is a really... And he's in Morocco too with Marlene Dietrich. Like those are very sexualized gorillas. But then he's in like Bob Hope movies and the Marx Brothers and all these like goofy comedies where where they need a really convincing gorilla and they call this guy. I mean, if you look at his IMDb, it's insane. It, it's the amount of movies and they're all like you know gorilla, gorilla, gorilla. Or like occasionally he's like a monster or something. But mostly he's a gorilla.
1: Yeah, I love that his profile picture on IMDb is him in I Married a Monster.
2: War of the Worlds is the one I always associate him with because he was in the Martian suit for those brief scenes with Ann Robinson. And I got to say, the gorilla suit that we see him in here, it's pretty good, actually, for those few shots. It's not bad at all. It's For the time, it's pretty incredible.
3: I mean, it's all real animals except for this one, you know, fake animal, and it blends right in.
1: Well, it's nice, too, that it's an Asian actor, Tetsu Kamai, playing Malinga. Which is nice that there were, oh, wow, we actually have real Asian people in here. Of course, he's not, you can't see his face uh, through the makeup and everything, but the Malink character is so important that it was nice that they had this very prominent role for this Asian actor. And also, he's really the gateway for Parker to find out. What is going on? As far as like looking and seeing his ear and seeing all the hair and seeing the pointedness, and again, you know, you're talking about those close-ups. I love when we get in there and, and see that, and and just have that be our revelation as far as oh, something is off here. I mean, I think I would have picked up on it a little bit earlier, but you know, you can't can't have your main characters know everything right off the bat.
2: Or um, the shot a second later when he lunges at the captain, and we just see the teeth as he's coming right at camera. That's such a good, creepy shot.
1: What I really like, too, on that boat, when Parker gets kicked off and you get that stunt of whoever it was. I don't imagine it was Richard Arlen falling off of the boat onto the the other boat or the dock. It was just like, wow, that looks like it hurt.
2: I'm pretty sure we're getting, like, a shot of a dummy and then a really perfect cut to a stuntman rolling onto the boat, but the editing is so good that it really does feel like a guy just got flung off and landed. It's, yeah, very effective.
1: Good dummy work, then, if that's the case, because it did not look like a dummy to me, which is terrific when you can hide that.
3: This is 1932, like, you know dummy work uh in the 80s was still looking pretty bad like this is pretty pretty good i didn't i didn't see it as a dummy i thought it was a stunt man too just when it's falling you can see one of the
2: joints go a little too far the wrong way uh, just towards the end of the shot but again it's it's cut together very well
1: Whenever I think of a dummy shot now, I mean, of course, there are so many famous ones, but I always think of the dummy from the sabotage video and just how long they hold on that dummy. (laughs) I mean, on purpose, of course, you know, But it's like, wow, Nathaniel Hornblower really knows his stuff. I always think of the floppy
2: one from Dawn of the Dead that gets thrown around all through that movie until finally they just blew it up.
3: I think of the great fuggy dummies from the uh, Temple of Doom bridge sequence where they had those little gyrating gears in them, but they were tied down to the bridge. And so once Indy, like, breaks the bridge, the things undo and the, the little animatronic arms and legs start to wiggle. Pretty darn effective, I have to say.
1: That was really amazing, yeah. When it's strange that this film isn't more well known it's not in that pantheon like i thought for a long time because there's the universal logo on the beginning i thought oh this is another universal horror movie no no it's a paramount movie and the commentator definitely makes that very apparent which is great why don't we talk about this more why don't we know it more and i think some of it is because it's a pre-code movie that wasn't allowed to be shown later on in subsequent runs. Like the Paramount tried to bring it back out and what was it 35 and then tried to bring it out again in 41 or 42 or something like that. And each time the Breen office was just like, yeah, no, no, this is, uh, it, this will never pass. <laughs> and then they eventually brought it back out much later on in a really truncated form and they just kept cutting things up because we've got a lot of violence we've got blasphemy we've got bestiality we've got uh Moreau encouraging one of his beasts to rape Ruth i think her, her the character's name is and then after that uh that doesn't work out so well so hey why don't you go uh kill this comic relief uh captain as well and yeah it's just uh it's super violent in that line of Moreau's about like do you know how it feels to to be like god it's like yeah, that, that can set some people off. Well, I mean,
3: that would have
2: to get cut from Frankenstein a year ago, yeah. <laughs>
3: that line was permanently removed from Frankenstein. Like, there are no versions where you hear that line. Or I think there is now, on one of the Blu-rays, you can actually hear the audio, like, separately. But I don't think they it was ever released with, you know, now I know what it feels like to be God. Um, but in Moreau, and that was also really interesting, the censor office the pre-code censor office didn't have a problem with anything in the movie. They said, you're going to get, this is going to get cut in local states are going to cut this, which is why they empowered the, the code in 1934 anyway, because people in whatever town were just hacking these movies up and they wanted to, you know, get do away with that practice. But clearly movies like King Kong and Frankenstein did get reissued all through the 30s, 40s, 50s. Uh, And I think you're right. I think this one didn't maybe at the end of the 50s. But still, like, if you took out all that stuff, this wouldn't be as good a movie. Like, I think Frankenstein, even if you take out two or three key moments, you know, it's still Frankenstein. And you're still really getting that story. So much of what's great about this movie is how transgressive it is.
2: I also have to wonder when it switched over to Universal, because I wonder if the fact that maybe it wasn't included in those shock theater packages that went to TV is part of the reason why it's not as well known. I mean, so many people grew up with the Universal stuff being on creature features and late night TV and things like that. And if this was kept away from that, because I know I never saw it on TV, I wonder if that was
3: part of it. I mean, the Devo guys in, the, in their stuff say they, they saw it on Goularty, at least in the 70s, early 70s, or late 60s, it was on TV. I love Devo and I
1: love to hear Jerry and Mark talk about stuff. But the inclusion of all of the Devo stuff, like at first I was like, oh, okay, we've got the music videos in here. That's pretty cool. And then when they had the full interviews with those guys, I was like, guys. This really doesn't have that much to do with Island of Dr. Moreau. Like, maybe put this out separately. Like, just put out the complete truth about Devo as a criterion release. And then we can get all of these stories, all these videos. It's such a tenuous connection to the movie.
3: It's funny you say that because my memory of that bonus feature was that it was an hour long, at least like from, and when I went and rewatched it, I'm like, it's only 19 minutes. It's not that different from some of the other ones, but I agree. It feels like this little mini documentary about Devo and how, you know, they were inspired by this movie.
2: It's funny that the go-to is Devo because for me, it's always Oingo Boingo and No Spill Blood. I mean, that song is straight from this movie right down to the law being recited throughout the whole song. That's always the go-to to me.
1: Yeah, as I was doing my research I didn't realize that um what was it the Meteors have a song about Island of Lost Souls and then also um Blondie and then the original version uh, the original lyrics to House of Pain by Van Halen used to be about Dr. Moreau but then they eventually changed it by the time it came out in 1984. I don't know if I can get my hands on an earlier version of the song, but I'd be very curious to hear what they had to say about it.
3: What's the Blondie song?
1: It's just called the Island of Lost Souls, and then in the video, there are a bunch of people in like monkey masks and those kind of things. I, I had never actually seen that before.
3: I, I missed that Yeah, one. me
1: too. Yeah. If it's not Fab Five Freddy in his white tuxedo doing that weird dance, it's like I don't tend to see a lot of blondie videos. Which,
3: by the way, also is not five f- Fab Five Freddy in that video. It's just some random guy. But,
1: <laughs> but she says that it's Fab <laughs> Five She's Freddy. She's
3: like, hey, Fab Five Freddy, but that's not him.
1: And then the look of Moreau. We need to talk about what Lawton is doing just with his look. I mean, the white suit. I mean, again, we're going to talk about plantation owners and and overseers and these kind of things. But his white suit and the little mustache that he's got and then that great demonic goatee that he has, the way that it comes to a point in the middle of his chin Oh, what a look this guy has. And Lawton, Lawton is the kind of actor that it just seems like Lawton is having the best time when he's on screen in so many movies, even when he's under all that makeup and Hunchback of Notre Dame. It just seems like he's really having a great time. I mean, him as Captain Bly, him in one of my favorite films, The Big Clock. Every time I see him on screen, I'm just like, this guy is fantastic And here. Wow, what what a little devil this guy is. That moment
2: just before he suggests, like, oh, maybe I'll create a woman, that weird little naughty boy smile and giggle that he gets, which comes out of nowhere, but it's like, wow, this guy's really demented.
3: <laughs> He's like, I made a joke. It's almost Austin Powers like, you know, oh, you know. I love Lawton and I think it's interesting that Brando would play this part later because I feel like Lawton is one of those actors who definitely, obviously loved to fuck with people, didn't have a lot of uh, uh, patience for, you know, directors that he didn't respect or whatever, but always was devoted to his craft and his performance. And he can do both like he can thread the needle of clearly having a great time and hamming it up and, you know, really enjoying himself while still Being very spooky and very credible, you know, in even the silliest of parts. I mean, I really like the Jamaica Inn, the Hitchcock movie that everybody always says is like the worst Hitchcock movie and that Charles Lawton is too hammy in it. But I think he's great in that movie, too. And I think that's the thing with Brando. He just really obviously did not enjoy the craft of acting after a certain point and really kind of hated the industry he was in. So all he wanted to do was fuck with the people that he was working with. Uh, whereas Lawton, I feel like, kind of has his cake and eats it too,
2: plentifully. There's a couple little subtle things he does. I love when he first introduces Parker and Loda and it's like, I'll let you leave you young people alone. And you see him rub his hands together and like, oh, I have to go to work now. And, you know, he's just going to be sitting out there watching as, you know, they get to work. It's just such a... Full creepy detail or one of my favorite things in the movie as the beast men are kind of getting out of control and you know Lugosi is having his amazing speech of you know part man part beast and we cut back to Moreau and he has a weird little smile on his face and now you could argue it gets into the kind of weird BDSM aspect of Moreau which I'm sure we'll get into but I always took it as that's the moment Moreau realizes oh my god I succeeded they have this moment of self-awareness they're They have this anguish of being aware of what they are. They are really human. I did it. And it's just the moment where he's about to get killed, too. (laughs) It's like his moment of triumph is his moment of death.
1: My favorite shot with him is the most obvious one when he lays back on this table and crosses his legs and he's just (laughs) he's giddy and diabolical and yet he seems bored at the same time he he encapsulates so many emotions as he's going through here and yeah just those little smiles or just the way that he'll read a line i mean what a wonderful performance he's giving in this
3: That's kind of a Brando move that that sort of time when he's like lounging on the table. That's not a not a 90s Brando, but like a late 60s, early 70s Brando move where he'd be like, I'm just going to do this and see if the director has the gall to tell me not to do it. You know, it definitely has that kind of feel of, you know, an actor just kind of seeing what they can get away with, but still feels perfectly within character.
1: And I love that he actually knew how to use a whip and that he's using the whip like with abandon in this movie. He just really seems to relish every single time he gets to crack that whip.
3: Yeah, the commentary track talks about how he learned how to crack a whip for a play he was doing in London where he was playing like some kind of sadistic overseer. And so he got really good at the whip. So, yeah, it's just one of those unexpected talents that becomes a total bonus for a character like this. When he's making them recite the law and it
2: becomes the exclamation point to everyone, bang, what is the law? Or then when he has not he's just using it to gesture when he's doing the tour around the, the campus and like, you know, here, look at this. I made this thing. I made this asparagus. He just, he's another one of those actors who's great with props.
1: <laughs> it all started with a lily. One of my favorite lines. The big clock is, uh, you know, if he insists on this, I I should have to call him a liar. And just the way that he purrs these lines and he purrs a line in here where he says, I should much prefer, Mr. Parker, that you don't leave this room. And it's like, oh man, what a delivery that was.
2: The way he kind of, Rides the middle when the, the boat sinks, and he's like, I have no idea how
3: this could have happened. Looks over to Montgomery. I mean, the natives were rather restless, but uh, and then he doesn't even finish the sentence. I mean, he's almost like twirling his mustache and kind of looking coy, but he's still, again, totally credible. I love the detail. You can see Oran right behind him
2: with his big smile like, I did that.
1: We should talk about women in this movie, and, and women in the the whole Moreau, the book itself. I mean... Well, I was doing my research because I had never read the book before. I read it for this and I was, uh, reading somebody's term paper or something. They're just like, there were no women in the island of Dr. Moreau by H.G. Wells. And I was like, well, that, that's not really true. There are, are definitely, there's no human women, but there are female animals that are on the island. And then also it's, uh, this puma that like we, we hear. In the movie, we hear screams from another room, and we uh, Parker is very upset. You know they're they're vivisecting a living human being. You know they're cutting up a man and all this. In the book, it's a puma that is being cut up and eventually is going to be turned into what could be the panther woman. Obviously, the puma woman, and that is Moreau's undoing. Once he uh, the the puma. As uh, it's being turned more and more and more into uh, a human, eventually rips the chains out of the wall and escapes, breaks uh, Prendick's arm, and then as after Moreau goes after her, uh, eventually she ends up killing him, or he dies of natural cause or falls or whatever. But she. He, I think that she murders him, and then she dies as well. So we never get to see like the fully formed version of the Puma Woman. But I think that that, as well as – and we'll talk a little bit more about how Wells and Joseph Conrad went back and forth, but also partially inspired by a character from a Joseph Conrad book. I think that's part of the reason why we ended up with the Panther Woman and Loda, and I just – her role is fascinating to me, and I'm so glad that they added her here. And it's interesting that then she would carry through every single other official adaptation of Moreau.
2: It kind of goes to the time period that, oh, we need a romantic triangle. We need some kind of more romantic interest. But the way it's worked in here is really, really good. And she's such a, a sweet and innocent character, and you really feel for her. It's one of those things where going to the movie, you know, once you know what she is, it's like, okay, there's no way that she's going to be allowed to survive. The censors would never allow for that. But I do love that they allow her a heroic sacrifice at the end, that she's the one who saves everybody from Orion by attacking him, notably the same way that he attacked Donahue, climbing up on a tree and jumping down and attacking.
3: Yeah, I think it's a great character, and I totally understand why they carried it through in the other versions of the movie because, you know, You want, I mean, it's just like, obviously, yeah, it's Hollywood. They want beautiful girls in their movies, but it's also like you get a sense of, uh, you, you can relate to the character even though she is technically a beast person. She doesn't really look like one. And as much as you relate to Parker, I feel like you empathize with the beast woman. Like that's your second surrogate more than Montgomery. You're, you're feeling empathy for this character who's also trapped on the island and is just kind of fascinating. It's funny you you just mentioned we should talk about women when I was mentioning like oh I don't think they cut to the Ruth character in the book. It just like as I was saying that I was like, you know, this is actually kind of an interesting character. So this is a 19th century, like proper English lady who just charters a boat with one other guy to go sail off to some random longitude and latitude coordinates with no port, nothing. She's just like, yeah, I got to go find my guy. I'm like, okay, next time we remake the movie, let's do the version that's just about Ruth. And <laughs> it's about like going and trying to rescue your guy there. I mean, that's quite, it's funny. It's, it's taken as nothing. Like, yeah, of course someone would do that then. Yeah. Of course. And that's what you would do for your fiancé, right? I mean, you know,
1: he's missing. Yeah, she is so self-assured. I really like that. I
2: kind of imagined her as like this rich heiress, and that's why she could do that. Like, I've got money. I'm chartering a boat. I'm going to do that. I I love when Donahue gets on there like, you a friend? She's like, of course not. <laughs> and he's like, all right, just asking. I was just being polite. I do wish she had a little bit more to do in the movie other than just be, you know, sort of the damsel in distress or at least the threat of being in distress for the third act. But Lila Himes does do a a really good job on the part. I like that she at least doesn't have end up just running around screaming for the rest of the movie.
3: And it is a short movie, as you said.
1: Was it her that was in Freaked the year before? Yeah, she's the Or sorry, Freaks the year yeah, before. Yeah, She's the
2: good girl. She's not the she's not Cleopatra,
3: she's the other one. The one we like.
1: <laughs> she doesn't get turned into a chicken no, at the doesn't.
3: end. <laughs> Which would have been appropriate here, but <laughs> There's a lot of similarities with this movie in Freaks. I mean, like, the ending is really similar. I guess it's similar to Frankenstein too. It's just that in Frankenstein, the you know, the hordes of monsters who are attacking the characters are the humans, the villagers. You know, but in... In all the other movies, this, I guess, being the last of them, you know, it's like, it's, as you said, them all attacking Charles Lawton and him kind of loving it to some some degree.
2: I like that flip around that the mo- you know, the lynch mob here are monsters chasing the human, not humans chasing the monster.
1: <laughs> well, as I was reading the book or listening to the book, I kept thinking at the beginning about uh, Planet of the Apes, which I wonder if Moreau was a little bit of an inspiration for Boole to write Planet of the Apes, just especially with their three guys in a life raft at the beginning. We don't get that in Island of Lost Souls. We get that in the 96? I don't think we get that in the 77?
3: Yeah, he's by himself. uh, Yeah.
1: That's really fascinating to me, especially that opening with them on the boat and... That they are talking about reverting to cannibalism, and you really never find out if they partook in cannibalism or not. And there was a great essay I read talking about the the guilt of cannibalism that Prendick feels through the book and that he basically he starts to project his feelings of guilt onto the swine hyena character who interestingly enough comes back in the 96 version but yeah that was that was really fascinating because uh yeah i never thought about that but there's even a line later on about like you know we we don't uh what was it we don't need animals or cannibals on this boat and i was like Oh, I think they're talking about you, Mr. Prendick.
2: And Donahue has that line about, you know, long pork when he's joking with them around dinner. So it's like, oh, it's still kind of there in the background. Yeah.
3: (laughs) Yeah. Like cannibalism is so in the culture that they even have slang for it. Uh, But I read that article, too, because he sent it to us. And I was thinking, yeah, that, you know, it's just an interesting observation that like in the very first pages, he's stepping away from his humanity for a certain uh, extent because he has no choice. But like, even though he doesn't eat human flesh, he was certainly contemplating it <laughs> and would have uh, if the other guys hadn't beaten each other up again. It's just, it's just good writing. Like remember, you know, back in, back in the glory days of literature, like that's yeah, just a great opening scene. It it carries so much thematic heft.
1: That scene comes back a little bit more in the 96 version there's more of that in the uh, director's cut of the film, which unfortunately I did not track down, but I went to movie and saw some screen grabs and the two other guys end up getting to a fight, which we, I think we see that in the finished version, but then there's yeah, this whole thing where they extensive. go in the water and there's a shark. And then one of the guys comes up and grabs onto the, the David Thule's character. And I'm like, well that would have been interesting, but we'll definitely talk about the 96 version more later.
3: I did watch the director's cut. I watched the director's cut of it and it, the thing about it is because I have it on on DVD, but like the thing about it is as well staged as an action scene that it is, like there's no room for the thematics we were just talking about because it is a extensive fight scene, there's danger. There isn't really talk about cannibalism, you know, it's just a lot of fighting and falling and sharks and, you know, it, it's like a, it's like a get them in the opening action sequence as opposed to a thought provoking sequence.
2: It only kind of has the idea of Theliz's character actually has to kill this guy, has to hit him over the head, knowing he's going to kill him in that moment
1: to survive. And he doesn't then drag him back onto the boat and start to eat him.
2: Yeah, that would have been a good idea. There's already a shark there that's kind of taking care of that. So
3: <laughs> he
1: just pulls them up. Uh, and just
3: the give me an arm or a leg <laughs> or something. You know, I'm starving here. Come on, Bruce. We can
2: split them. Come on, Bruce.
3: <laughs> what do you, you like? The leg of the wing.
1: <laughs> Loda, uh, the panther woman, definitely proves that there's a lot of eye makeup on the island. I'm not sure exactly where it's at. I love that she has she has very exotic features, and of course, you know I was talking about the Asian character uh, earlier. I don't think that the actress that portrayed Loda was Asian, but they definitely quote unquote Orientalize her and make her more of the other. And it's I mean it's it's pretty twisted when you hear Lawton talk about you know oh she won't go for you or I Montgomery, and when it comes to to Lawton to Moreau, I'm just like. Is that cause you're gay? Like, I don't like other than like, of course, you know, in, in the movie, he is the creator and he brought her life in the house of pain and she wants nothing to do with them that way. But he is coded as gay quite a bit in this movie. And I don't know his relationship necessarily with Montgomery either, but yeah, you talked about the sadosexual kind of stuff. That's definitely running through this movie as well. But just him going like, Oh, uh, let's put him and her, uh, let's put Parker and Loda together in this room and see what happens. And basically, he wants them to mate. And I'm like, oh, wow. And then when when it doesn't work out uh, later on, he's just like, oh, well, hey, beast man, why don't you go mate with Ruth now that she's on the island? It's like, holy
3: shit. If I can't get the human to mate with the beast, uh, the other way is probably a whole lot easier. Yeah.
1: That was the most fascinating thing in the, in that audio commentary for me, which was the guy talking about how there was a, I don't know if it was in a, an earlier play or if it was an earlier draft of the screenplay, and I think it was an earlier draft of the screenplay, there was a, a faceless monster that was chained up, it was kind of that, the monster in the closet and the thing that wouldn't die, and Moreau gets the bright idea later on that he's going to kill Parker and sew Parker's face onto this monster, and then Ruth will be attracted to him. I'm like, oh my god, that sounds so
2: horrific. For the time period, I'm like, they really thought they were going to get that on screen? Yeah, <laughs> that's not going to happen
3: they don't spend a whole lot of time in the commentary track talking about the different drafts, but they do talk about how many writers were involved and some of those early ideas, which are, I th- I really do think that the conception of the Panther woman is such a great, you know, if you're going to adapt a complex book into a much simpler film story, it's such a good conceit, I think, because it is scary. And then, as you said, like in a 72 minute movie, there's that reversal of like, yeah, we don't know exactly why Moreau and, or, and, or Montgomery haven't forced themselves upon this creation of theirs to test out the mating. But, you know, for whatever reason, the fact that they're going to make this stranger, you know, who she might actually want to sleep with be like the person that they're going to mate them with. I mean, it, it, it does seem like what breeders do. Like some breeders just with some animals, you know, I grew up on a farm and, we we had a guy come and bring what uh, I was. It was a sheep farm, and we had every year we'd have a visit from the guy with the ram ejaculator, which was like this machine you hooked up to the ram to collect its semen because very often they just weren't interested in impregnating the ewes. And you're like, yeah, you know, Montgomery, you know, Law- Lawton probably could have gotten Montgomery to do that at least once, you know, even if it was just with a turkey baster or whatever. It's much more the idea that he wants them. To see not only can she mate, but will she fall in love? Like, is she attracted to this person? Like, he's much more interested in the emotions, or he's as interested in, in the emotions as he is in the actual biology, the reproductive system. He wants her to, like, feel what humans feel. And that's just, that's all great. Like, that's really good stuff, I think, that's in that screenplay.
2: It implies this idea he doesn't quite understand women. So he's like, I'm not sure how these female motions work. So let's see if we can make this work this way. Yeah. Ab- but ab- yeah. It's also Absolutely. really creepy because since we don't know immediately what she is, and then when we, once we find out, we realize just how far ahead Moreau has gotten in terms of making this work. And this idea of, wow, he's actually kind of close to making these creations pretty human and
3: that's really really creepy we find him at this stage where he's almost perfected it i mean it, the thing that's frustrating him is that creeping beast flesh you know he's not like damn i couldn't get the face right or damn i got one hoof one hand you know like those are we see all the past experiments and we see his even earlier ones the poorest gut souls who are like powering the treadmill there to power the electricity but with Loda, he's actually like, yeah, he's basically nailed it. He's he's succeeded, except it's not permanent and it keeps like growing back, and that's like the next thing he has to figure out, which possibly is the mating. Like, if he can mate a human with one of his creatures, maybe then he can make a a creature that doesn't revert back to a beast.
1: Yeah, and just him outside of the window looking in, just that voyeurism of is so creepy, and just. Like you said, he doesn't seem to understand how men and women get together. So he's just like staring out there, like leering at them until Montgomery's like, Hey, there's a problem at the house of pain. Let, let, let's go back over here. You get this weird feeling, or I get this weird feeling when Parker eventually figures out that she's not human. She is super upset because he rejects her and she's basically in her room crying and. Lawton comes in, Moreau comes in, and it's like, what did you do? How did he figure it out? Tell me what you did. Like this horrible, it felt like like this father coming in and being accusing of his daughter, which basically it is, because he is the father, she is the daughter, really. And just that her holding her hands and stuff. And it's like, Oh wow. This is super sad. You really feel for Loda. Like you really root for her. Like you said, she's our secondary and uh, protagonist in this film and does a hell of a job. And I can't believe that this was the woman playing her. This is her first professional acting gig. She really does a great job physicality she brings to it when she's
2: with parker and like literally rubbing herself up against him like a cat it's so good it's so suggestive yeah and that scene where she starts crying and Moreau's reaction is to laugh out loud like "Ha! she is human i've done it and when he he implies you know i'm gonna burn the rest of the humanity out back to the house of pain her panic on the bed where she's just like screaming oh it's heartbreaking
3: it's a great reversal because you see Moreau at like the, his absolute lowest point. Like you feel like we get to see him at his lowest point where he was like, well, that's it. This was my last shot. You know, I, I can't make it work. I'm a total failure. And then she starts to cry and he's like, no way like you know there's hope uh none of these creatures have cried yet like i'm cracking something the emotion the human emotion is there and he gets all excited again again a a wonderful huge the 180 degree uh performance that Lawton gets to give but also just for the character it's really great and like you were saying the panther woman i mean it's a publicity stunt like she's not even an actress she's she's like the winner of a contest uh like a summer-long contest that uh, Paramount did to, like, be the Panther Woman. And there's great stories on the uh, commentary track where they talk about, like, they narrowed it down to four finalists and they signed all four of them to contracts, but, like, she was the winner and, you know, just it's, it's a gamble because this is a really important part. You can't just put anybody in it. Even though she doesn't have a lot of dialogue, like, she really does have to act a lot. And It's really good that, you know, the contest winner actually can
2: can do a performance. It makes me want to find more of her roles like that Murders in the Zoo one they mentioned in the commentary. I'd like to actually find more of them and see her performances in other films because I think she is really great here. I do want to bring up also that that scene is important because it's also the beginning of Montgomery's turn. And uh, I really like Arthur Hole as Montgomery. He's easily my favorite version of this character in any of the films. And his performance is really kind of pulled back and restrained, but it's fascinating to watch him over the course of the movie, his disgust with Moreau. And, you know, at first he's like, he's a great man. He's a brilliant man. But we see that disgust building up until he's finally had enough and he's just like, load it. No, you're not going back to the House of Pain. That scene where Moreau's yelling at him, because haven't you got that equipment fixed yet? I think he's sabotaging it so Loda doesn't have to go back in yet. I think he's trying to stall and give her more time before she actually ends up back in there.
3: I really like the way Montgomery is played in all three of the versions. I think he's the most consistent character version to version. I think Nigel Davenport in the 70s version. At first, he starts out a little generic, like he's just a drunk and a kind of a, a dick. But when he gets to have his heroic turn... I think it, you really are like, oh, wow, like Nigel Davenport's like kicking it up into gear. And even though, you know, Val Kilmer, we all know how all the horrendous stories of how awful he was to work with. The, the envisioning of that character in that version as this sort of like failed doctor, sort of drugged out guy who is basically just like stuck on this island and high most of the time and and just sort of disgruntled and almost has a death wish like this is a very interesting character it's the most interesting character in that version of the movie i
1: totally agree and montgomery of the book is very different from any of these performances as well just his you don't really know exactly where he stands uh quite often he doesn't really make friends with prendick he is kind of standoffish and he survives after moreau goes but he realizes I can't go back home. Uh, there is nothing for me there. He was about to be thrown in jail, or was it that he was in a... Was he in jail, or was he in an insane asylum that... um moreau pulled him out of but yeah he has nothing to go
3: he was back going to, be to committed in one way or another yeah, that's we, what we, it was we never yeah. find
2: out what it was some foggy night in london something happened and we never quite yeah. find out and in but he can't return
3: that's the main thing yeah which gives him an air of mystery
2: too, in this film know. it seems to be some kind of professional indiscretion is how moreau puts it so i was like did he commit malpractice was he drunk during a surgery and killed somebody did he perform an abortion yeah because
1: you do there are enough lines where you're like oh he really likes to drink okay i get it
2: i just wasn't sure if, if the
1: drinking was his
2: reaction to what he has to do on the island or if that's part of what brought him there
1: i was amazed that they kept the story of how moreau uh got driven out of england with the flayed dog that escaped from his lab so i just have this image of this skinless dog running through the streets of england just people screaming and throwing up their hands and the newspapers got a hold of that and basically drove him out that's wow uh that's wild but yeah montgomery survives after moreau dies in the book realizes that he really has nothing to go back to he ends up destroying the boats and gets in a fight, I believe, with a few of the animal people, uh, beast people, ends up dying. And then, stupid Prendick, he's running out to see what's going on with all of this stuff. And when he comes back to the house, uh, to Moreau's place, he's like, oh, ah, yeah, I heard a noise. I didn't realize I knocked this lamp over and burnt the whole frickin' place down. And it's like... It's such an important scene in all of these other movies is the conflagration is the beast people turning on Moreau and burning the whole place down. But in the original book, it's like, yeah, some of the beast people get killed. The swine hyena is still around. Eventually Prendick manages to murder him. But it's basically a lot of animal people, beast people, just slowly reverting back to their animal form as much as they can. Because the thing that gets me is that Moreau is not content to just take an animal and make them into a person. He is mixing and matching. So there's like... Was it, a vixen bear woman? There's um, a satyr that he makes, so it's like part goat, part person. I mean, it's just, there's a, a, a horse and a gorilla I think he's got. It-, it is a creature which roams the earth alone. It is half man, half bear, and half pig. Horrific images that Wells is writing about. And I love that he's writing this from a place of anti-vivisection, that he's basically coming at this as a almost a crusader. And it's so weird to me too, because I always think of like, Oh, HG Wells, that's uh, you know, 19th century, but it's like, no, he was alive during this time. (laughs) And he really hated the Island of lost souls. Like, Oh, okay. Yeah. He was the Alan Moore of his day.
3: I know. It's wild to think that HG Wells is like alive and well. Yeah. (laughs) Well, in in some of the articles you sent and also in the commentary track, they talk about, you know, the the book as being satirical, too, and whimsical in the Jonathan Swift style. And I have I must admit, I've never read Jonathan Swift, but I thought that I mean, I guess I'm now very curious to know about Jonathan Swift, because I definitely saw like the Conrad and the Kipling connections. And again, I didn't realize that these guys are all born almost within like a few years of each other. Uh, So they really are commenting back and forth on each other's work which is just really interesting as someone who just did not pay attention in high school english i missed all that stuff and had to go back and reread it in my 30s but without you know interesting people giving me the context and we didn't have podcasts then so you know i'm sure there's like the rudyard kipling uh podcast that i need to find uh Although I'm sure it's all very anti richard Kipling these days, but uh, I'd just be very interested to know more about Jonathan Swift, obviously seems like a very prominent figure of this era. Knowing some of Wells' views
2: on things, I can see some of the satirical elements, especially his views on religion and especially sex. One of the laws that doesn't get translated into the movie is the whole, you know, not to take more than one mate. That is the law. More than
3: one wife. And of course,
2: Wells being very free love, I'm sure he thought, yeah, screw that.
1: (laughs) Yeah, that's the thing with all of these authors that we're talking about. They all feel so of the past, you know. To to think that Bram Stoker is a contemporary of uh, Conan Doyle, and that you know these guys are all, yeah, kind of passing ideas back and forth. To know that uh, Wells was kind of mad at uh, Conrad because he felt that Heart of Darkness was too similar to Island of Doctor Moreau, and I'm like, wow, I. I you don't think about these things, you know, you don't think like, Oh, these guys are all here and that this is the turn of the century. So they're actually going to movies and seeing these things. It's like, okay. I mean, by the time, and we'll talk about this a little bit later on, but by the time the Island of lost souls comes out, there've been two unofficial versions of the same story that have been done. And there have been authors that have been ripping off wells (laughs) with the same type of stories as well. So it's like, wow. Okay. Uh, I, there's a lot more going on in the early part of the of uh, the 20th century that I just completely forget, or I just kind of assign it to an earlier, you know, like the Victorian age wasn't that long ago.
3: Well, it floored me to read that that uh, Heart of Darkness was like came out two years after this. I would have thought, you know, 40 years before at least. You know, I just yeah.
2: I'm still stunned by the revelation that Wells didn't like the Invisible Man movie. I mean, how
3: can you not like the Invisible Man? That movie's brilliant. <laughs> Do any authors like, especially this era, like like movies? I mean, movies are so simplistic. Noel Coward had a great line about the first film adaptation of one of his plays, they asked him what he thought and he said, well, it was okay, but I'd prefer to just go home and have a hot cup of cocoa, you know, which just <laughs> sort of basically summed up, even though he had been an actor in movies and everything, but he was just like, yeah, you know, this isn't, this isn't really art. This is some silly populist thing. You know, he changed his tune and became quite a good uh, writer and director of, of films too. But at, at, at the, uh, I guess I was still silent era. Yeah, well, I know when he was an actor, he was silent, because he's in a D.W. Griffith movie as like a kid, Noel Coward. But yeah, I don't think many writers of literature enjoyed film adaptations of their work, because they're just so simplistic. No, but to
1: find out that Wells wrote, what was it, three shorts for Elsa Lanchester to be in, yeah. that yeah, movie was also yeah. in? Yeah, it's, it's like, really? The, okay, I didn't think that... H.G. Uh, Wells was a you know a, a okay, screenwriter.
3: Right. I wonder
2: if you I know. wonder if those exist. I want to find those if those exist.
3: Oh man, that, if they did, they'd probably be on this disc. I would, I would think, hope so. You, know, but like, yeah. you would
1: hope. That's yeah. the kind of
3: thing Criterion would dig out and figure out a way to put on a
1: disc like this. Well, I'm guessing that the and I know I'm getting ahead of myself, but I'm guessing that the twenty was it twenty six one that you shared with us, Tim. I'm guessing that that was on the Lost Soul documentary disc because it had the Severn logo all over it. I
2: I don't own the Lost Souls disc yet. I really got to buy it. It was 1921, German one. I wondered that because I did see that uh, logo on there. I guess so. Uh, That was an interesting one. Yeah,
1: (laughs) yeah. we'll definitely talk about that a little bit after the break. But yeah, that that was a very fascinating find. But yeah, I would have loved if they had that on this criterion as well as there was one from 1913, a French version as well. And it's like okay, why aren't these on there?
2: I couldn't find out if that one still exists or not. That's the problem. Everything, so much from that era is lost that it might not even exist anymore.
1: And that was all of 23 minutes, I think it was. So I don't know how they managed to pack in everything in 23 minutes. It's already tough when it comes to like, you know, 60, 70, 70, 80 minutes, you know, just this movie moves very, very fast. And the the pace is up. And especially as we start to get towards the end of it, I mean it becomes a snowball just rolling downhill very quickly. Once once Ruth and the comic relief boat captain show up, I mean Then it just kind of pulls out all the stops. It's like, okay, suddenly we get the love triangle that you mentioned before. We get this whole thing of like, oh, now I'm going to have this beast man rape Ruth and, you know, I'll forget about Parker. Things will take care of themselves with this. And when that fails, he's just like, okay, now I need you to go kill this captain. And then it, it, he keeps doing the same thing. Moreau's got this thing where he's just like, oh, wh- where's Captain Douglas at? Or <laughs> like, oh, oh, now you can't get to the mainland. Oh, I'm so sorry. Oh, how that I happen? I love the
2: premeditation. That if you watch during that dinner thing, it's like, another drink, Captain, another drink, Captain. He's getting him drunk to make sure he's going to be off his guard when it comes time to have him killed. <laughs>
3: He's the very responsible captain. He's very temperate. Like, he'll have a drink, but he's always like, whoa, whoa, that's enough. That's enough. He knows when to say when. This movie does not give you a good view of sea captains. They're
2: all drunks, as according to this movie.
1: (laughs) The guy that plays the second captain, I'm trying to remember the the Uh, actor's name. Pat Hurst, I think. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, he's great. He's got one of those great faces. So I remembered as soon as the the guy that did the commentary mentioned that he was in uh Gone with the Wind. I was like, "Oh, yeah, yeah, cuz he's got that great like lumpy face and I kept
2: thinking of Michael J. Pollard. He just kept remind me of him. <laughs>
3: Very, very, yeah, like an older version. Well, I don't know. Michael J. Pollard always looked the same age, but yeah, he he could be like Michael J. Pollard's dad. You know, the way Alan Hale and Alan Hale Jr. look identical, it's very hard to tell the difference. Like, but he had that kind of putty nose, that sort of W. C. Fields kind of alcoholic nose, which I think is all like is such a great character actor trait. I mean, I don't wish it on anybody, but I do think it's a you know it's very cinematic, especially in black and white, to have one of those like kind of diseased noses, and he has that a little bit, but you can tell he's very cheery about it. You know, he's just like, oh, he's a very jocular soul. He's a really interesting character in that he's kind of comic relief, but he's also, we get the sense
2: he's been in a lot of scrapes. He talks about how, you know, the hinge is still working, my head's still here, I know what I'm doing, it's fine, he's cool-headed, and unafraid maybe he should be a little bit more afraid but you start to think okay maybe this is the guy that's gonna save the day and like nope no he's dead that's it yeah, that's that. <laughs> and it's kind of shocking to have this charming character so brutally murdered late in the film it's like wow the stakes are really high now
1: <laughs> yeah and of course i mean he had been around since the silent era and did a ton of shorts but altogether i think the number of credits for him on imdb is like 340 something it's like holy
3: shit yeah. They cranked him out in the silent era. <laughs> Get five or six movies a week.
1: Yeah, and he used to direct some of the, the silence as well. So he was, uh, he was all over the place when it came to that. I want to say he was working. Um, was he the one that was working with the Keystone Cops?
3: No, that's the director of this film. The, like the, the director of A Little Lost Souls started out as a Max Sennett uh, actor, was a Keystone cop, and, yeah, and then directed for Max Senate as well.
2: It looks like he did a lot of Westerns late in his career. Uh, He was in They Drive by Night. I know that one. Mr. Deeds Goes to Town. He has a small part. The Missourians, Angel and the Bad Men. So a pretty wide career. Yeah.
1: I mean, as a director, he did 146 titles and he did things like House of Dracula and the Ghost of Frankenstein, House of Frankenstein, which I know John Landis doesn't think are great movies, but I definitely enjoyed them. So. Sorry about that, John.
2: I love House of Dracula. House of Dracula has the cutest hunchback assistant in the entire Universal monsters canon. <laughs> She's adorable.
3: <laughs> I don't think they're great movies, but I definitely like them more than John Landis seemed to. Uh, when in, in that interview where he's talking to Rick Baker, uh, yeah, he he's very he seems pretty contemptuous of them. But he also said something that totally contradicts what the uh, commentary track said about Bella Lugosi. Like he said. That like the commentary track said, Bela Lugosi really wanted to play Frankenstein and was and was sad that he lost out on that part and took the role in Island of Lost Souls to show that he could work with makeup. Which the guy does say is maybe a little bit of a dubious claim because he basically said he took any role because he needed money. But then John Landis was like, "Yeah," he uh, said that Bela Lugosi refused to play Dracula and didn't because he didn't want to do the makeup. So it was too conflicting story i mean sorry a frankenstein um two conflicting stories on the same disc which is always fun because you know there is no history in film history
2: i did some research into that and supposedly it wasn't the makeup it was that when lugosi was going to do frankenstein the script was very different and it was just a straight rampaging monster no pathos no character to him and that's why he didn't do it and then whale came on changed the script and that's when karloff got involved so that's what i've heard is that was the script it wasn't that he didn't want to play this you know part makeup he didn't want to play just this straight stock monster that wasn't very interesting well that makes more
1: sense i am a big fan of the tv show face off which has nothing to do with the john woo film it's the makeup uh reality show and they've got uh michael westmore is one of the the people on there I didn't realize the Westmores had this dynasty that went back to Wally Westmore way back in the early part of the 20th century, where, and maybe, maybe he was a son of another makeup man, but they've been doing makeup in Hollywood, the Westmores, for literally like a century. So it's just amazing. And when they brought up like, oh yeah, that was Wally Westmore that did the makeup, I was like, Westmore, Like, as in Michael Westmore? And and I can't remember his daughter's name. She was the host mm-hmm. of Face Off. I was like, holy cow, I had no idea how far back this went. Oh, yeah, they are all
2: over the Star Trek franchise. There were, like, some siblings, I think, in that whole group. And they got very competitive, from what I remember hearing.
1: Because <laughs> I mean, the makeup in here, the creature designs are, are great in – I love like towards the end when things are starting to fall apart and you get that pan of the the different faces in the crowd and they just it's like one person is uglier than the next person. I mean no offense beastmen but they're not a pretty group of people as you go across them and you just see the The pain that they've that they've suffered. I mean, yeah, that the all of the times that Lugosi shows up and does the recitation of the law, or you know, the the whole thing of you know, we are not men, we are not beasts, we are things. That all of that is terrific, and you like you said, you hear the pain in his voice, and you realize like, oh, these guys have been through a lot of stuff. Because you don't. I mean, you get the one guy who's on the table. But you don't necessarily see that much torture otherwise, but then you hear the pain in Lugosi's voice, and you see the looks on these guys' faces, and you're like, okay, yeah, shit's about to get real here.
2: I like how it's also kind of gradual. Like, the first time we see them on the boat when— Moreau mentions, oh, I can give you a crew. And we have that great pan across them on the boat, which I don't know if you noticed mirrors the pan across the humans on the boat when they first pull Parker off of there, there's that great pan across all these guys. But when you start to see them, it's like, all right, maybe this guy's just deformed. Maybe that's just a weird looking guy. And just slowly you start to see how grotesque they get. The makeups get a little bit more in the course of that pan. And especially over the course of the movie, we just start to see more and more. They're like, wow, that's a little stranger. Oh, that's even stranger until You can't just accept, okay, maybe this is just a strange-looking guy.
1: The end of this movie, and I know we'll talk more about the 96 a little bit later, but the end of this movie reminded me a lot of the end of Apocalypse Now. It reminded me of after Willard calls in the airstrike and just everything is going to shit at the end of the movie. You know, you've got willard killing kurtz you've got the massacre of the ox that happens and uh you know all the fire that's coming from the the napalm and everything and just this reminds me a lot of that where it's like everything all bets are off you know law no more there is no more law you told me doctor to spill blood you had had the one beast man kill the the sea captain everything is is going to hell and. When the, when they're running out, they're trying to escape, and Montgomery does the last little humane thing where he doesn't shut the door. He leaves it. He's like, he might escape, so let's leave this door open. And then you get Moreau going through that door, and he tries to shut it, and the Beastmen are already on him, and you know that's it. As If he can't close that door, you know that his life is null and void, and that he gets put into the House of Pain, and then... I love the commentary track pointed this out, and I hadn't realized it before, so I went back and I rewatched the weird noises that he's making when he's on the table in the House of Pain. It almost sounds like ecstasy or maybe a little bit like laughter, and I'm like, wow, what an interesting choice for you.
2: Yeah, I never took it that way until I listened to that commentary. Like, yeah, there is a little bit of almost like a weird pain chuckle there, or... Or, or or, almost an orgasmic moan.
3: (laughs) I always just thought it was a strange moan, but then you're like, yeah, moan. Like you're, you know, everybody else who's been in this house of pain is screaming. He's moaning. I didn't take it as ecstasy until it was pointed out that way. But then I was like, oh yeah, I guess there it could be tinged with a, uh, you know, a a flavor of that. You know, like he's terrified, but he's also turned on, and it is a. It's an experience, and he's an experiential man.
2: There's so many weird little hints of that with the character across the movie. I mean, he's a guy who carries a whip. He's definitely into dominating people. Uh, He's a voyeur. And there's that moment when he's talking about fixing the equipment with Montgomery where he's leaning against something that looks like a St. Andrew's cross and just kind of poised against it, like, what's that doing in the lab? Or even when Parker first shows up, he's like, I guess I bet you'd like a cold shower. It's like there's this weird sex tinge to everything in this movie.
3: (laughs) And it's like the, the Big Clock, too. You brought up The Big Clock, and you know certainly, I mean, there's so many uh, Lawton performances that just ooze that kind of titillation.
1: Yeah, him and George McCready in that movie. You're like, okay, and George McCready is definitely the jealous lover in that movie. I mean, of course, you get a lot more in the remake of The Big Clock. I mean, it's it's pretty much sure, just blatant yeah. <laughs> with yeah. Will Patton, what's going on, but right. I prefer no, – yeah, I prefer the MacReady-Lawton relationship and that it is so, you know, on the DL, but it's there for for everybody to see.
3: But because of Gilda, because of George MacReady and Gilda, you know, it carried like that relationship, which is very homoerotic, carries over into the big clock so that, you know, I mean, when I grew up, all I knew of George MacReady was Paths of Glory, because that's the movie I'd seen over and over again as a young person. You know, it's still one of my favorite movies. But that was my sole image of George McCready for like, I don't know, 15 years. And then, you know, I, when I saw his earlier work, I was like, oh, yeah, this this character. Now I associate this actor with like sort of a slight homoerotic tinge, just like Charles Lawton. So in The Big Clock, when you put both of those guys in the same scenes, it doesn't matter what decade they're taking place and what, you know, censorship was like, it just... It resonates that in a very cool way.
1: There's also, you mentioned the, the St. Andrew's cross. I believe the commentator said it looked like an inverted cross to him. I mean, there is, of course, this biblical imagery that goes through this whole thing. Of course, the story of creation and very much the, the idea of Moreau as the creator. And he's basically also the snake in the Garden of Eden where he's trying to get Adam and Eve together with Loda and, and Parker. But then that moment at the end when Montgomery is rowing, uh, Ruth and Parker away. And and he's just like, "Don't look back," and I'm just like, "What are they going to turn to salt if they look back?" And it just felt very much like the destruction of. And Nora. Don't look back. Yeah,
3: <laughs> it's a great last line. I didn't
1: realize that there's no score to this movie. That is, there is no music other than Until
3: anything that, that they might game. be listening
2: to. And that yeah. end credits cue is really conspicuously bouncy and happy <laughs> after what we just yeah. watched.
3: <laughs> one of the things that one of the only things that I think is really, really good about the, or at least really interesting about the um, Burt Lancaster version is that they do try to take some of what's in the third act of the book with flipping it from an Old Testament God into this idea that after they kill Moreau, they're like, well, he's not dead. He's Jesus. And they like hoist him up. They, They don't raise his arms like a cross. That would be a little too obvious. But basically, he's just hanging there. Bert Lancaster's just hanging there like a dead man who's just been lynched, but they're like, "Look, he's he has risen." You know, like he's watching your every move. He's judging you. You can't see him, but he sees you, and like all that stuff, which is in the book, is really interesting. Of just like, yeah, religion. You just kind of you know you pull these ideas out. You control people with it. It's it, and obviously Wells was not a big fan of organized religion, and it comes through in the book. And they try to get it in, in the seventy seventies version.
1: I really wanted them to go farther with that in the book, because, yeah, as soon as he's dead, he's like, Frederick is like, oh, he's not dead. Oh, no, he he chose to get rid of that form. He's now up above us. He can hear everything. He can see everything, and he'll be back. Eventually, he'll be back. I mean, it is so the Jesus (laughs) story. It's wild. And then he drops it for a while, but then he brings it back again. I was really hoping, like, I was so sad that the Slayer of the Law was one of the people that's murdered on that beach that I was talking about with Montgomery, because I wanted the Slayer of the Law to Suddenly buy into it and become this almost, you know, uh, Paul of Tarsus type of character, Saul of Tarsus, uh, uh, Pope Paul type of character going around proselytizing about yeah. he will return, he will come down until then. You must be good, you must follow the law. And that's what he, it, what Wells is going for, but he just doesn't lay it on a little thick enough. I mean, it reminded me a little bit of uh, that. It's not a good movie, but there's a Ricky Gervais movie where he's the only person that can lie and everybody else has to tell the truth. And he starts to make up a, a thing about the man in the sky who sees everything. That's a lot more satirical, but I like the sa- satire in this. I just wish it was, it was a little bit more biting.
3: Yeah, I'd like to see Bella Lugosi with like wafers like, this is the body of our master. You know, like <laughs> <just> a bunch <laughs> of
1: leaves.
2: <laughs> oh, also, I almost forgot I got to bring up. I was a little surprised at the time to see that moment after Donahue's killed when Oran comes back with his shirt and it's just soaked in blood. And it's like he he bleeds. He can die. It's like, wow, you don't yeah. normally see any blood in a 1930s horror movie. That moment, and that's the kind of the thing that turns the say or the law around to, oh, he
3: can die.
2: That's a big moment.
3: (laughs) That's grim. Well, and also that he's a hypocrite. I mean, it's sort of like, that's where this movie is really unrealistic. Like, the idea that masses would turn on their leader just because he's a hypocrite? Like, (laughs) that never happens, you know? Wouldn't it be great if that was the case? But, yeah, it's true. You don't see a lot of blood. You don't see any blood in in Universal movies, right? Is there any Universal horror where you see actual blood let alone like have it be this plot not point? even in dracula <laughs> and that's all about blood <laughs> no yeah yes yeah you don't see blood in dracula that's wild
1: i know ian you had mentioned at one point that this movie reminded you of uh i walked with a zombie and i could totally see that and especially because really and i mentioned this way earlier in our discussion i mean this is a slave revolt you know like all of these beast men are slaves and they could really easily be i mean really you can you can read this as this is uh slavery or even this is colonialism i mean the whole idea of I'm bringing in, you know, here's the, the great white man in his white suit with his whip and his, his, whip and his gun whipped. and all <laughs> this. Yeah. And he comes in and he's like, Oh, I'm going to change all of you and you must follow my customs. Now you need to be like me. You need to start wearing clothes. You need to start, you know, obeying the law. You need to adapt my religion. Basically, I mean, this is such a colonial tale. Make people make the beast men who aren't. Up to your standards, make them feel bad about themselves. I mean, all of these beast men basically hate themselves, and it's all this guilt that that Moreau is is foisting on them. Just like, well, you're not human enough. You're not man yeah. enough. And they're trying their best. I mean, that the the litany of the law always ends with, Are we not men? And just they're trying their best. They want to be this. And then when Lugosi, as the the sayer of the law, is like We are not men. We are not beasts. You know, we're part men. We're part beasts. We're things. That's what really hits home for me. And it's like this this self-loathing that they have and that it ends up being projected out as anger and hatred and revenge. I mean, the the end of this movie reminds me, and I can't remember if Mandingo ends in a conflagration, but it definitely reminds me of like a slavery story to have them finally turn and burn down the plantation. I also kind of saw it as a
2: class warfare thing, too. I mean, Moreau has a really nice house. He could have provided some nice housing for the... the his creations, but no, they live in these terrible little huts. They're basically told, you know, you follow the rules, you do this, this is what you're supposed to do. And once they realize the elites are vulnerable, it's like, oh, let's get them. (laughs) And they get in there and start using the tools that they haven't been allowed to. I mean, like Lota is more human passing, so she's allowed to be in the house, but they're not.
3: Yeah. And I was just going to bring up passing. Yeah. Like, I mean, basically Moreau sets up this idealized standards that none of the creatures Can ever, they can aspire to it, but they can never actually achieve it. It's just simply not in their DNA. It's, they're, they're a different race. And so he's created this racial hierarchy where Loda can pass. Like she, she actually does get into a relationship with our human protagonist where for a while she passes until there's some telltale ear or finger or something where, where, or just it's that kiss. Where, uh, you know, she, she no longer can pass. And then, as you said, it's self loathing for no other reason than she's been given this standard of beauty that is actually just, it's not that it's unattainable. It's just not who she is. Like, and, and it's the same with all the other creatures. Um, so yeah, I think that's also a, an interesting reading.
1: Yeah. Moreau creates these creatures and then he casts them out. Like each one of them is a rough draft, a pencil sketch for the next one. So he just keeps improving, improving, improving until he gets to a Loda. But yeah, to your point, there's those strata of here are the earliest ones. They're not even allowed to be with the rest of the group they just power my generator and they're just outside stepping on this generator and m- giving me power i mean again power and yeah i love when they break in at the end and they're just like oh the little knives and they grab all those scalpels it's like "Ooh, that's i can imagine them just all stabbing a little a little julius caesar all of them stabbing at moreau and killing them all
2: that finale reminded me of two different movies. I kept thinking of the original Day of the Dead, when they're all starting to go after the Colonel Rhodes character. There's a lot of that. In fact, there's a lot of Dr. Logan from that it has a very Dr. Moreau vibe to him. And Conquest of the Planet of the Apes, which is one of my favorites of that series, when the apes literally like, all right, that's it, we're done, revolution. And they grab the guns, and they're just going at it.
1: Well, until in the theatrical ver- or the TV version, they're just like, no. Put down your weapons.
3: <laughs> did they bring Roddy McDowell in to like redub it? They, they did, yeah, because it, it was a, that
1: think? horrible ADR and just the close-ups of the eyes, so you don't see his yeah, mouth. Because it was a
3: little too, a
2: little too extreme, apparently for audiences.
3: <laughs> yeah, a little too revolutionary for eight o'clock at ABC Saturday Family. I think they actually did that for the theatrical version too.
2: Actually, I think they. I think you're right.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It wasn't until just a few years ago that you could actually see that real ending. And it it was one of those revelations for me when I was younger, where I was like, this doesn't seem right. This is not what's supposed to be happening. And like, I was like, they totally dubbed over even that female ape who goes, no, I'm like. That didn't sound right at all.
2: I also kept thinking of Nightbreed, and they have their own version of the law, except it's there to separate the breed from man rather than enforce them as being man. In fact, a lot of the creatures in that movie feel like they would have been right at home on Moreau's Island.
1: So, guys, let's go ahead and take a break, and we'll be right back after these brief messages.
0: Step into the gallery, dear friends, for horrors, nightmares, and spooky tales. This is the Midnight Viewing Podcast, and we like to discuss the frightening world of television horror anthologies. From Rod Serling's Night Gallery, to Tales from the Dark Side, to Hammer House of Horror, and more. Father Malone, Chris Stashu, and Mike White will be your docents during this Midnight Viewing. Available wherever you download your podcasts from WeirdingWayMedia.com. On the sixth day, God created man. On the seventh day, he rested. And on the eighth day, in the year 2010, in a remote laboratory, an exiled scientist created something impossible. Unmistakably human Undeniably animal On the island of Dr. Moreau I'd like to present my children Father? Oh my god From director John Frankenheimer H.G. Wells' most terrifying creations about the line that separates man from beast and the notorious doctor who dared to cross it we are men because the father has made us men Marlon Brando Val Kilmer David Thewlis the Island of Dr. Moreau. Directed by John Frankenheimer.
1: All right, we are back, and we're talking about the Island of Lost Souls, and we've mentioned a few times the 77 and 96 version. And the 77, I don't think I'd ever actually watch that until doing the research for this and I have to say, there are some things that I like. Well, I love Barbara Carrera. Um, I grew up watching Never Say Never Again. Never and-
2: Say Never mm-hmm. Again. Yep. Holy I know the shit.
1: best <laughs> Oh, she's amazing in that. But to see her in this, I was like, ah, okay, she's no Faruza But yeah, she's pretty good.
3: Is she dubbed? Is it, is it her voice? I-, I wondered if it was her actual voice.
1: It didn't sound like her to me. I mean, if I I don't know if she's putting on a thick accent in anything or what, but yeah, her character was a little confusing to me. She's Maria, I guess she's a, also a panther lady in this. Well, so. that's
3: that's the thing. It's a real they cop out in that movie because they never. I think originally the plan was, and even the poster of the movie, one of the posters is that like Loda, she is one of Moreau's creatures but in there's no reference to the movie as released or as you can watch on DVD where uh she has any reference to being a beast she's just like his adopted daughter essentially who says i could never leave the island i and i think originally in fact on the blu-ray that i have there's a bonus feature that just says still from alternate ending. I might even just say alternate ending and you click it and it's just a still of, of a film frame of her with like red eye makeup or like red eye contact lenses and like, you know, wolf cat teeth uh, in her mouth. Like so on the boat when they were escaping, when he transforms back into a man, the idea is that she transforms back into the cat lady that she originally was, I guess, but none of that is in the movie and it's too bad.
2: If you look in the movie, the last shot of her, you can see the transformation starting to happen because she has contact lenses in and there's a little bit of makeup. So it was like the first shot of what would have been that transformation. And I know the Marvel Comics adaptation actually has her full-on transform and attack him right there in the boat.
1: Yeah, because that's what I was expecting to happen. And when it doesn't happen at the end of the movie, I'm just like, wait, that's it? Like, she's always going to be human now? What about that animal flesh that just keeps coming back? And this is the first time I, I think we're seeing... Moreau turning humans into animals, which just did not make sense to me at all. It's like, oh, yeah, no, I can turn animals into humans. And for kicks, I like to turn uh, uh, people into animals. See, well.
2: I really like that idea because he's like, all right, now I'm going to get firsthand observations from the person turning what it's like, what's happening in their brain. That I think is really fascinating, well, which is fine.
1: Yeah. I mean, it's a fine idea. It was just an interesting thing that they they just switch it up. So I'm like, okay. And Michael York, I thought that his makeup again, I thought looked really good. I really liked the makeup on Richard Basehart. And I barely even recognized Richard Basehart because the last time I saw him, he was hamming it up so much in an episode of Columbo (laughs) that when he showed up here, I was like, is that him really like at, at first i was like yeah yeah he's very subtle and Dude's i like that
3: sayer of the law and he's subtle
1: and i like the horns on his head and everything i thought that, that he looked really good this was the version i actually grew
2: up with so i was more used to this one and i always felt i feel like lancaster's morrow is a little closer to the book in terms of he's not just like this sadistic psychopath he's very amoral especially when he you know finally moves on to murder montgomery but at least get a sense of why he's doing it i mean like with Lot, it's just like, I just want to see if I could. With him, it's like, well, he can cure diseases and cure deformities, and there's so much we can do with this.
3: He's very serious. He's very cerebral.
2: I will say, after watching Island of Lost Souls, this movie felt very slow to me. <laughs> the pacing of, of the 32 one is so good, and this one's just like, wow, this is kind of slow and kind of small. I will say, though, the scene where Braddock, the Michael York character is imprisoned. And Moreau is trying to get him to revert to animal form. And he's going back over his childhood memories, trying to hang on to his humanity is such a good scene. It's some of the best acting I've ever seen Michael York do. I really love that scene. And that was the moment I was like, all right, that's great. And I agree that the idea of uh, bringing back the religious angle, I think is really good. I wish there was a lot more of that in the other versions.
3: My complaint about the movie, my main complaint is Michael York, and it's not that he, his acting is bad. I just feel like the way the character is written and directed is so dumb. Like he, he, he does not, he's not a smart man. Like he, He's brought onto this island and immediately he's just like, he has no idea where he is. He doesn't know anything about these people. And he's just like flying off the handle left and right, going, you know, accusing Moreau of all kinds of things. Like, I'm just like, dude, what, where are you coming from? Like this character. it's not even that he has to be a, some kind of genius, but if you were in a situation like that, where you don't know where you are and you're trapped into these weird people, you would be pretty quiet uh, gathering information. You wouldn't start accusing your host of all kinds of horrendous atrocities because he's probably going to inflict them on you. I, I just think that's too bad. I, and I, I do think it's a, it's a problem of the script and the direction because you're right. The makeup and the whole transformation and the prison scene Michael York is very good and it looks good. I wish the other creatures looked as good. Like I think of the three movies, this is the one where a lot of the creatures just look like, you know, they just went down to Toys R Us and put some, you know, heads on and did a little bit of extra work to hide them, but they don't have the elaborate craft and care that the, the 32 version and the, 96 version.
2: Which is a little surprising considering it's John Chambers who did Planet of the Apes, and those makeups still hold up today. I will also say that scene with the fight with the tiger is really hairy to watch because it looks like that stuntman's really about to get eaten. I know the fiberglass helmet he had as the boar man there pretty much kept him alive from the tiger actually crushing his head, but that's a scary scene to watch.
1: (laughs) Yeah, I thought for years that this was a TV movie, and when I watched it, just the production values looked like a TV movie to me. I was very surprised to find out that it was a theatrical release because it just the pacing and everything. Yeah, it just felt very, very slow. I watched it. Uh, I think last Saturday and I was like, okay, yeah, it's, it's like, let's, let's kick this up a little bit. So I don't have as many problems with the 96 version as i know a lot of other people do like some people are just like oh it's one of the worst movies ever made i'm like that's
3: crazy that's that's a crazy claim one of the worst it's one of the worst productions it was a nightmare production but it's a totally watchable movie the problem
2: is you're going into a version of Island Dr. Moreau directed by John Frankenheimer with that cast. You're expecting something amazing. And I remember I was in '96. I was so excited by this, and I was incredibly let down by that one. So much so that I immediately went home and started writing my own screenplay for a Dr. Moreau movie. And I gotta say, Part of it is Val Kilmer for me because every time he's in a scene, man, the pacing of the scene just drags because he's just wandering around doing whatever. And you can see David Thulis is getting frustrated with him. That scene where Thulis is like punching him and slapping him and yelling at him like, that's not acting. That's Thulis finally getting some back there.
3: If you want to see these guys acting, there's a bonus feature on the DVD, like a ge- generic, like produced by fine line. And they are talking as if it's just another movie. And, oh, yeah, it was really great working with Val Kilmer. And, oh, yeah, this is a re- you know, really interesting script. Like, you know, they- that's acting. The best acting is that, you know,
2: EPK bonus feature. That's the thing. When I think the whole movie can be summed up by Montgomery's one line of, oh, well, things didn't work out. <laughs> And once he and Brando are gone, I feel like the movie almost starts to recover. When it's just Thulis against the the uh, human animal creatures and the hyena swine, it's like, oh, I can see this almost starting to come back together again. But nope, too late.
3: When you watch Lost Souls, though, you do kind of wish it was Rob Murrow and not David Thulis because, like, to some degree or another, the character, the Parker character... Is supposed to be an everyman and you can't get farther from an everyman than David Thulis, you know, unless you're, you know, talking about Brando or <laughs> Charles Lawton, but like Thulis is a very, very strange looking actor. He has a weird way of speaking. And, you know, if you saw Naked, the first movie most of us knew him from, he was kind of permanently that character for like at least 15 years. You couldn't see him in a movie without thinking of that guy, you know. I, but I agree. I mean, one of the things that could could have saved that movie is that the two starring roles have the least amount of screen time. And so you really, you know, I, I'm surprised because, you know, Marlon Brando has been fucking with directors for like 30 years before the making of that movie. And, you know, Frankenheimer is no pushover. Richard Donner figured out how to work with Brando, even... Uh, You know, uh, Andrew Bergman in The Freshman figured out how, like, they figured out how to placate him and get him to show up and do the performance in a way that, you know, I think is very amusing in Island of Dr. Moreau, but you can tell, like, nothing that Brando is doing is what's scripted or what the director wanted it's a hundred percent i'd like to have this bucket of ice on my head i'd like to wear nothing but you know white paint and complain about the sun like there feels like there's not a single moment of the movie where brando isn't in a hundred percent control and it's a that's a little disappointing because i'm a big frankenheimer fan this is late in his career obviously but uh it's also hilarious because brando is fascinating to watch in anything I mean. He's really, really a wild, wild screen presence.
2: And kind of his interpretation of of Moreau is not really this, again, psychopath or even sadist, but like this almost like a cult leader is really fascinating. I think taken the right way.
1: He's so Jim Jones. I mean, this is totally Guyana when he shows up and he's got the sunglasses on and stuff. And even to hear those tapes from Jonestown and then hear him, I'm like are you doing a Jim Jones impersonation? You sound like Jim Jones. And he's got those fake teeth that affect his voice too. I'm like, that's just, that is a weird choice. But then add in all of this other stuff that he's doing and he becomes just absolutely bizarre to the point though, where you're like, who's the person that makes these human animal hybrids. Maybe they should be the most eccentric person in the world that you've ever met.
2: As for Thulis, though, I do like him. That moment where he's confronting Brandon, he's like, look at these people. Look at him. <laughs> I mean, it's. Oh, yeah. When he points at Nelson De La Rosa. A, finally, <laughs> I feel like we're getting the version of this character that is sufficiently freaked out in a way that, yes, I totally believe that. Or like, you know, has it occurred to you that maybe you're all out of your freaking minds?
3: <laughs> it's like, yeah. yeah. The arc of the character in the, in the David Thulis performance is, a, is the correct arc. Unlike the Michael York who just starts there, he just like from beat one, he's just freaking out. Thulis really does sort of sit and observe and get scared and scared and more and more freaked out until the point where he's just like, all right, I'm fucking trapped and I'm freaking out and I'm, you know, look at him, look at him. But also yeah, great.
2: figures out how to manipulate them. It's like, you know, there can only be one God. What about this guy over here and this guy over here that has guns? Aren't you, don't you want to be the one God? <laughs> And poor Faruza bulk, who I actually think is great in this, and she's really trying and and hearing on the behind the scenes things of how she was treated by Frankenheimer by the producers, it's just brutal,
3: yeah, she really wanted to do something, and the German guy who plays Maling like they went to that island, they signed up for this, thinking they were going to have a really rich character to play, and then they're just stuck there for all these months in total total hell, uh, which is you know they're the only ones really from the cast who are interviewed in that severin documentary uh, lost souls um but you know you can see why they they wanted to get it off their chest i mean they were really disappointed the drawings the concept
1: art is what sold it for me with that stuff especially the the jesus-like moreau holding the the newborn baby and all the dog doctors behind or the the vultures that looking
3: the like womb all oh, off yeah. their fingers yeah
1: right or the vultures it looks like a law office and the vulture has like little spectacles on and stuff because i was like yeah take this out into the real world what happens because when you think about it jurassic park is very much a dr moreau story and i suppose westworld has to be too but i feel it's more jurassic park because of the science and the creation the john hammond character where he's like oh i have to be there at the birth of every single creature It's like it feels very moreau for me and like oh i'm gonna imprint on these uh, creatures and then when the creatures turn on them and eat them it's like that's what you deserve john uh sorry to tell you but you you spent so, so much time saying if, if you could you didn't say <laughs> if you should
3: yeah, and the John Hammond character in the Crichton novel is much more like Moreau. He's much less Santa Clausy. He's not, you know, this benevolent guy who bit off more than he can chew. He's much more mis- m- mischievous and Machiavellian.
1: I still feel bad that B.D. Wong ended up getting saddled with the villain roles in those Jurassic World films, because it's like, I love his character in the first Jurassic Park, and it feels like they did him a disservice. I mean, I love B.D. Wong, so it's great that he shows up, but he suddenly becomes the mad scientist where he's like, I'll keep making bigger and bigger dinosaurs in order to make money. And I love that money is at the heart of these Jurassic Park movies, but – There's no such thing here with these Moreau movies. It's not like, I'm going to make these monsters and then I'm going to open a theme park. You know, (laughs) it's, it's I'm going to make these monsters because I can, because I want to, because I want to feel like it feels to be God and I want to manipulate these things. And it's like, okay, that's. That's motivation, man. That's real Speaking motivation. Speaking
2: of money, it really is a shame that the 96 one didn't stay under the radar with like Prock now as Moreau, like Stanley in, intended, and been like a $10 million movie because they probably would have left him alone.
3: Richard Stanley, obviously, you know, he'd made two prior films. He he wasn't, you know, he's, he was not, I mean, this is what we try to do nowadays all the time, right? We get somebody who's directed one successful independent film, and then we put him in charge of like... A three hundred million dollar movie, but of course they're not really in charge. They're just like the director, but like it's not like you know when you're essentially making a low budget film that you're you know putting together with scotch tape and band aids and you know wish hopes and dreams. And and, you know you could see if he could have secured the rights to the novel, a low budget or even a twelve million dollar version of this, as you said. You know he that's who he said he originally wanted, right, Jorgen? Jorgen Pragnus. That would have been. Yeah, and still with all the Stan Winston special effects, because I really don't think... The budget ballooned because of Stan Winston. It ballooned because of Marlon Brando and Val Kilmer. Absolutely. Right? You yeah. still could have made that low budget movie with all those designs with, you know, Ron Perlman's ram horn and he's, he's blind like Sarah the Law can't see. And the Hyena Man is like an incredible design. And I don't know who that actor is, but it's a really amazing. Or, um, Tamira Morrison as,
2: as Zezalo. He's, he's terrific. He's really scary.
3: <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah.
1: Oh yeah. When he, when he licks his fingers after he puts the rabbit down, I mean, just that little movement. I'm just like, Oh, that's great, man. And this Montgomery feels a little closer to the Montgomery for me of the book as far as him not being able to break himself of eating meat and just like that his, his dog, uh, quote unquote ends up tasting blood. And it's like, Oh, that wasn't good. And you shouldn't have done that. I mean, he's not. He's not a dick in the book. The, the Montgomery is, is, is not that, but I, I, I like some of the things that, that not necessarily that Val Kilmer is doing, but that the character is doing, if that makes any sense. Cause I think some of the choices that Kilmer was doing, cause I remember reading, I think it was in Entertainment Weekly before the movie came out. They were signaling that there were some problems with this film and they were talking about how. Val Kilmer would constantly impersonate uh Marlon Brando, and then there's that moment in the movie where they bring him out on the palaquin and stuff, and he's got the white face makeup and he's got the red cross on his forehead, and he's totally doing a uh a Brando impersonation and I was like, well, that would be okay if he now wants to become Dr. Moreau, but he doesn't he doesn't it doesn't seem like he has any sort of motivation at all like you said he just wants to kind of get high and have fun
2: that's the thing his relationship with moreau in this version is so unclear it's like sometimes it seems like he's at odds with him like he's trying to undermine him with the the creatures sometimes it seems like he's right in with the program it just it really feels like the script is lurching from scene to scene without any real direction where all this is going which it sounds like was the case when they made it
3: yeah, it seems like another thing, like Marlon Brando didn't want to act with Fal Kilmer, so Marlon Brando called the shots. And so whatever was scripted between those characters is almost, it's so minimal to that they almost have no relationship other than what Fal Kilmer refers to early on. And he does do a Brando impression when they first land on the island, uh, which is kind of funny Um, but it makes more sense that he does that than dressing up like Moreau, which, you know, I guess is supposed to be the beginning of his descent into madness, but he doesn't have that far to descend. He's already sleeping with the pig ladies and, you know, taking the same medicate. you know, he's got the medications full of like shrooms and acid and, you know, in some kind of horse tranquilizer that also supposed to keep the flesh from pulling back. And he's eating that too, even though he's not a beast person, like the guy's pretty, pretty gone.
1: I mean, it's basically his character from real genius if he had not if he had not realized that they were using him, and like if Mitch hadn't come along and kind of put him on the right path, he would end up on that island. I was I thinking think. there's a lot of Jim Morrison in there, actually <laughs> yeah.
3: oh I, yeah, I, I think there's less Chris Knight and more Jim Morrison like Jim Morrison the distance from Jim Morrison to that Montgomery is a, a small trip.
2: And it kills me because it's not like these actors were doing this because they had a strong emotional connection to, I want to do this with the character. They were just doing it for ego and to, to mess with people. And it's and as a result, destroyed what could have been a great project. And I'll admit, these days, it's kind of tough to feel sympathetic for Richard Stanley, giving all the allegations. But I will admit, he was an amazing filmmaker at the time. Like I loved his color out of space. I loved hardware. Despite it being hacked to pieces, I really liked Dust Devil. And I imagine this... Movie, if he had made it the way it was supposed to have been made, would have been probably pretty amazing.
3: Yeah, possibly. I mean, I never felt that sympathetic for him, just because I feel I don't know. I'm 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 an anti autorist myself, so I feel like people think that like the number one job of a director is to have a vision, and the vision visions are like opinions and assholes. You know, like the the job of a director is to do all the things that he obviously couldn't do, and you know, maybe could have done on a project where he had more control or if he had a really strong producer that he was working with who could work as a kind of intermediary between him and Newline. But, you know, it doesn't seem like he had that kind of relationship with anybody either, certainly not with Ed Pressman. Um, so it's like I've always felt like, yeah, you know, once you cast Marlon Brando, If you're not up – I mean, if you don't know what you're getting into, then you're an idiot because he's literally got a 30-year track record of fucking with every single director he's ever worked with. But one of the things that's interesting is Richard Stanley in the documentary does talk about how he feels like he was able to win Brando over. And maybe that's wishful thinking. Maybe not because Brando might have really liked him. And if Brando's daughter hadn't committed suicide and Brando really was – Allying with him in order to fuck with everybody else, he might have been able to stay on the picture and made a picture that was much closer to what he wanted to make because actually working with the director would have been Brando's way of screwing with everybody else.
1: I mean, I don't want to disparage Richard Stanley's religious views, but just all the hoodoo voodoo stuff with the magic, I was just like, oh, for fuck's sake. You sound like you're 12 years old when you talk like that. Because otherwise, he sounds super intelligent, and he was you know, given the whole background about Conrad and Wells, and just like, you know, his ideas all sounded very, very interesting. And I was just like, well, then I went to this magic man, and he put a curse on him, and then I got the directing gig back. And I'm like... What, what what the fuck is your problem, dude? I and then just that want, guy's want to magic be like
3: unraveled, and everything he every spell he did uh, came undone. Now, he got a flesh eating I mean, virus. Yeah, <laughs> he wrote a really good adaptation. I think. I mean, I think the adaptation. You know, updating it to modern day, present day and all the all the stuff that he does in the screenplay is really intelligent. It, it is good. I mean, I think it's a really good take. Not that much of it survives the, into the movie, but a fair amount of it. Does.
2: I'd love to find a copy of his screenplay before it was messed with. I'd be really curious to read that and see what it's like, because I bet it'd be
1: pretty fascinating. I mean, I found a version that's out on the yeah. Dropbox. Oh, so okay. if you want to grab that. Yeah, I thought I thought
3: that was I thought it was good.
1: So, yeah, I didn't realize how many versions of this there were. I, of course, started watching some other stuff. I mean, of course, <laughs> talking about the 96 version for just another second. I'm, you can't watch the 96 version now and not think about Dr. Evil and Mini-Me or moreover, the, the, what is his name? Dr. Mephisto from uh, South Park and his mini me and just the whole, uh, Nambla connection, the North American Marlon Brando look-alike association. <laughs> I love when they brought the those two characters onto South Park. I was just like, Oh, for fuck's sake, guys, this is hilarious. I love it. When he was trying to mate, uh, the pot-bellied pig with the animal, uh, with the elephant. So you get a pot-bellied elephant. That was amazing. But I went through and I was watching a bunch of other stuff. This was my first time I ever watched Freakazoid, the uh, Warner Brothers cartoon. That had an amazing play on Dr. Moreau. I watched the the uh, Island of Dr. Hibbert from Treehouse that of again 13, yeah. I think it
2: was. <laughs> I got to wonder this. Uh, Homer turning into a walrus and Marge being a cat. My wife and I have been wondering for years if that's a reference to Meet the Feebles, <laughs> where that. You have the couple that's a walrus and a cat. I'm like, I wonder if that's a little little nod to that.
1: <laughs> ah, interesting. I would
3: surprised. It's a deep cut, yeah.
1: Yeah, when I saw the walrus, and then I saw a walrus also in the, uh, what was it, the 21 version that you sent us, uh, I was just like, okay, Kevin Smith. Is <laughs> I wondered Venice? that too, actually. <laughs> and I, as I'm watching all of these two, I'm just like... Holy fuck! Freaked. Alex Winter's Freaked is very much—it's that thing of Michael York going from human to animal, but it's you know Eliza C. Scuggs turning all of these poor people into freaks and you know bringing out their inner personality through you know what the goop does to them. I, I was like, oh, okay, yeah, that's a Moreau story as well. But yeah, that uh, twenty-one version was fascinating to see. I wish. I don't know if that's the best version, the one that we watched out on YouTube, because I was really getting mad at the way that uh, whoever colorized it. First off, it's colorized. Second off, there's music to it, which was pretty good, except at the end when they were using the cue that is used more in the shining. So I'm just like, can't disassociate. Uh, but third off, it was um, the inner titles and that, it was leaving up the German, and then it would switch to English, and then it would switch back to German. But then a lot of times, I didn't see any English. It was just German. I was like, oh, I, give me a good version of this, please. I want to see this. I wouldn't have sent the colorized version,
2: but it was the only one I could find that had intertitles at all. So um, It was fascinating. Again, it's, it almost feels like a lot of the Moro stuff is kind of pushed to the side in favor of this romantic triangle with this guy trying to find his wife with his best friend and they find her and then he's like, Oh, forget my current wife. Uh, it's my old wife again. Yay. <laughs>
1: Yeah, I was having a little bit of a hard time keeping up with it at times. I was just like, who is this guy now? And like the, the one African-American gentleman that shows up and he's in the full tuxedo with the top hat. I was like, okay. <laughs> he reminded me of that famous picture of the guy who's got like three oranges in his mouth for some reason. You Do you know who I'm talking I, about? I do,
2: yeah. I had trouble with that because I was like, is this really progressive? Because there's this moment where he's like, hmm, there's like uh, – Four of us, three me, three white people and me, and we have three guns. And there's there's this native here. Forget the white people. I'm living with the native. Bye. And he just leaves them for most of the movie. I'm like, cool. I kind of like that. But then, he's pretty much a stereotypical black comic relief character for the rest of the movie, unfortunately. Although he does get to kill one of the main creatures, which I thought was kind of cool.
1: And I kept talking about how cool it was that there was an Asian character in the 32 version, and here we are all these years before in Germany, and one of the main characters is an Asian actor um, who's basically, I guess he would kind of be in the Montgomery. He's basically the Moreau-type character's right-hand man, but rather than carrying a whip and uh, beating the animals uh, or the beast people. He's more in the, uh, the, the, the lab with him. Um, but, and then, yeah, I love that. He, he's the one that turns the tables at the end. Of he the does. Series yeah. And, and ruins the big. Experiment. And Instead
2: of being alcoholic, he has.
1: um morphine, morphine, Yeah. Or, right. Or something. Yeah. But
2: yeah, I thought that was kind of an interesting turn. And I like this idea that there's an implication. He's just as responsible for this work as the Moreau character is, but the Moreau character doesn't want to share the credit. <laughs> So he's trying to blackmail him using his drug habit into giving away all that credit. And some of the staging of stuff, like the the big hot on fire at the end, that was a really great scene. That was really well done.
1: I'm not doing my due diligence. I should say that the, the, the I just won't keep saying the 1921 version. It was called The Island of the Lost. So if people want to look for it, it is out on YouTube in this weird version. But yeah, so 1921 silent version and... Yeah, that I was so glad that you found that. And I wish that I could find that 1913 Me one, too. which I really wasn't even aware of um until just recently. I was like, oh, wow. Because I, I knew that, obviously, the Moreau story has been told and retold officially and unofficially quite a bit. Because it was like a little cottage industry over in the Philippines with some of the Filipino exploitation films to do the Moreau story. I think – Is it Eddie Romero? I think he did it twice, right? Uh, Produced one and directed one, yeah. (laughs) Okay, that's what – right, Terrorism Man and then The Twilight People. And there was like 13 years between them, which was wild as well to realize just how long his career was and that he was able to be involved in two different ripoffs of Moreau – within a, a, a three decade period.
2: And managed to, to cast Blocks of Wood as the leads in both movies. Because <laughs> <laughs> man, that Richard Dare guy in Terrorism Man where he's just like smiling at the most inappropriate times and like, oh, you're traumatized. That's great. Here, let's hang out with me.
1: <laughs> well, at least Pam Be- Greer and Eddie Garcia are yeah, in the second one. <laughs> Pam Greer is great. She's the
2: best thing in the movie. Definitely. That and Batman or Man Bat, whatever you want to call him. <laughs> the the Batman hybrid that just can't really fly very well. <laughs> It was interesting, again, in both those that, I mean, you have the Moreau thing, but to some degree, it's kind of tucked to the side in Twilight People where it's mostly just sort of this weird chase movie by the second half. And Terrorism Man, it's only one creature. But I'll admit some of the ways they, the film was shot and the way they they staged the story of that creature, I thought was actually kind of interesting. I wish the acting was better because uh,
3: the rest of it in terms of production value, I thought was quite good. So many of the rip offs, the sort of unofficial remakes are about one creature, you know, I mean, in some ways, that's how they get away from the moroness of it. It's like it's an it's a single experiment that this guy is working on. And, and, you know, that that does kind of bring it into a different genre. And usually, you know, doesn't have to be on an island. You know, there's all kinds of ways of taking some of the concepts that Wells created and, you know, uh, just applying them to any type of science fiction monster movie.
1: I had forgotten about uh Spy Kids too. <laughs> yep. Yes, I do watch the oh, Spy Kids movies, movies occasionally. <laughs> there are some fun things too, those. And and Steve Buscemi as this Moreau type character, whose uh character's name is Romero. Uh probably George, not Eddie, but um and that he makes all of these like horse flies, which is what, uh, a horse with, uh, uh wings of a house fly and just all of these different creatures. So it reminded me of the old, um, Tex Avery cartoons where it'd be like, you know, we crossed a, a centipede with a chicken and we got drumsticks for everybody, a 10 foot pole with a cat. And we have a 10 foot pole. Maybe want to see
2: a Ray Harryhausen version of Island Dr. Moreau where instead of just like human sized, it's like all sorts of weird creatures that are
3: kind of human, but larger and stranger. That would have been incredible. That would be cool. But most of those movies star blocks of wood, too. So, you
1: know. You know, if they did Moreau right now, it'd all be CGI creatures and they'd look as good as uh, Dwayne the Rock Johnson and Me oh, Too. Yeah. God, yeah.
3: I, well, it would also be, you know, I mean, not to g- just disparage mo- modern blockbuster cinema, although while we're at it, why not? We're talking about a, like, literally. Hundred-year-old movie that is not hundred-year-old. How old is Doc? How old is uh, thirty-two? Is how many? We're we're ten years off. (laughs) Yeah,
1: yeah. It's like ninety-one movie. uh, Ninety-one years.
3: Ninety-one-year-old movie. It holds up so well, and part of it is just because of how beautifully photographed it is. And I do feel like that's one thing that we've just sort of lost for the most part in. This sort of CGI, the dark CGI muck that is everything, you know, that, that we watch now where you can't really even see anything. So it's fine that it, you know, something may look really good, but you don't actually see it because it's not lit. It doesn't exist in the real world. All of these movies, the creatures are practical. They're aside from, the cat person in the 96 version who like leaps and jumps like a panther, that's obviously very bad. Or the rats in the uh, director's CGI cut be- there, the the rat things on the boat. Oh, yes, there's, that's right. There are rats in the director's cut that are really fake looking. But like, I remember when I saw the Val Kilmer version in the theater and just like fur was like baffling CGI artists. Like they, computer graphics people could not figure out how to do fur for the longest time. And I feel like, most of the 90s they're like look we can do this thing we can make spider-man we can make anything as long as the skin is 100 percent smooth and there's no fur and then they've got this essentially tiger person that has to leap and jump and it doesn't even look like it exists in the same plane as the rest of the movie it's really really fake looking but other than that the the creature work in that movie is outstanding as it is in the 32 movie
1: I totally agree. Hyena looks amazing. I wanted to mention real quick, as far as the dispatching of Aisa, the Farooza Ball character, that is really rough for me. And that like, you know, I keep talking about this whole colonialism, like slave revolt type of thing. When Tamora Morrison says, you know, we were, you know, we've been in the house of pain. You, know, you mentioned it, like she's the one that lives in the house and it's like, we get the whip Nothing has touched your pretty skin, and then when he pushes her off and she hangs, oh! And and I thought that yeah, was actually he
3: lynches her basically.
1: Yeah, he lynches her, and I thought that was a very effective moment too. That it was, that it was all done in silhouette rather than you know showing it. Yeah, I thought that was really nice. That is a tough
2: scene, yeah, especially for such a likable character.
1: Yeah. Oh god, and I I mean I oh, love she- Faruza Balk. I've been I've had such yeah, a crush yeah, on he her too for is. the longest time.
3: Yeah. From From Return to Oz on, basically, but certainly Gas Food Logic. Return to Oz on the and, Worst Witch, you know, the
1: yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, she's uh, she's the reason why I like the Water Boy. So.
3: And I like Vicky, and she likes me back. And she showed me her boobies, and I like them too. I, n- I never saw the Water Boy. That's Adam Sandler.
1: Yes, it is. Yes, it yeah. is. Actually, I could be wrong. I think it's just Waterboy. No definite art.
2: Yeah, her her you know, want-me-to-kill-them I mean. sign thing is like the most romantic thing in the movie.
1: <laughs> oh, I love it. I love it.
3: Yeah. No. She. I. And I wonder if she was unwilling to do the death scene, and that's why they staged it that way, or if it was actually like an artistic touch on Frankenheimer's part. But either way, I think it works. I think it actually works a lot better than the scene you were talking about earlier where, you know, David Thewlis is like – convincing the hyena man like there can only be one guy like it's like "Eh, this is how this is all happening like you're on a cliff above fire at gunpoint like this guy's really fast on his feet it's not that eloquent a scene the scene where he says all the stuff to her about how she's like essentially the house slave and he's like living in a cave in his own filth and everything like that that's a really poignant and well-scripted scene it it i can't remember now if it comes from the uh richard stanley version but it's uh it's it's great. It's very very eloquently written, and it and it gets you. And Feruzabek has done a good enough job in this role that she hated doing, obviously, to really make you feel for her character.
1: There was one uh, other article that I just wanted to mention really briefly, which was a, a was a great piece talking about how there are several female authors that have taken Moreau from essentially from the screen and taking them back to text and have written several, I think they were all YA novels. And it was usually like Moreau had children before he left England. I think two of them at least were like that. And there was one where he just had one child. There's one where he had five chi- uh, children and they're, they're all girls or all women characters. And then the way that uh, these women authors are able to kind of, reclaim this character or claim this character and, and and uh you know really experience it's basically the panther woman because it, at least in one of these it ends up that she is a human animal hybrid and that she was his perfect experiment and she can uh yeah. feel all these things that nobody else can feel and you find out that it's because she is this hybrid but it's interesting that we're we're really taking that the character who didn't exist in the Wells novel, and even some of the things in these YA novels are just in the movies, but they're bringing them into these books. Yeah, I thought that was really fascinating. I thought it was a very uh, interesting article. I was glad to find the, – unfortunately, there's no lack of articles when it comes to people pontificating about um, Island of Dr. Moreau or any of these movies.
3: Well, and we're contributing <laughs> contributing to it There right you go, now. yeah. <laughs> we've been doing two hours of pontificating, <laughs> but I have to say, it's a, it's, it's a worthy movie of that. I mean, as you said, there's so many ways to read this movie. Most of them feel intentional, you know, and obviously the source material you can read over and over again and get something new out of it every time. And it's also just a damn good adventure story. That's one of the reasons I wonder if my dad read it to me as a kid, as a little kid, because the whole early chapters are so atmospheric it's a very cinematic book and you you're right there from the very beginning and certainly when he gets to the island you're just there's detail but it's not bogged down with detail it's just enough to really illustrate for you this this world that wells creates uh in what is essentially a fairly slim novel you know like it's not like it's moby dick or anything this is a almost a novella and uh but boy is it is it uh, a very evocative book
2: and some dodgy science aside it is one that really just updates very well i mean when it came to the 90s everyone's like well genetic manipulation and gene splicing of course you have to do the story again and now we're moving into you know concerns about ai and everything and where technology is going it's one of those ones that's sort of evergreen. you can always find something else to kind of attach to it or to use it as a metaphor for
3: well's always in like the time machine and you know in almost all of his stories like it doesn't get bogged down in how the technology works you do sort of just take it as read you know and except for i think one of the articles you sent us like was talking about how island and dr murrow is actually the outlier because all of his other films even all of his other novels even first men in the moon all take place in these very familiar locations. They're all in these living rooms and country houses and they're not often space or underwater or uh, on some mysterious island, except for this one.
1: Alright guys, we're going to take another break and play preview for next week's show.
3: Tu vois, généralement, en début de mois, je me paye un petit facture. Je me lève le matin et je ferai un matin pour récolter des pensions. Ce qui me permet, par la même occasion, tu vois, de repérer les vieux qui ont de l'argent. J'évite par-dessus tout, c'est les jeunes couples qui commencent, parce que ça, ça pue la pauvreté. C'est très agréable. Mais les vieux, hein, ils ont de l'argent, ça c'est sûr.
1: Tour à tour, finot. Tour à tour,
3: polisson.
2: Tour à tour, gangster. Mais tour à tour, généreux. Je ne trouve pas que ça sent en
3: misère ici. Ça sent la trouille, Rémi. On se rapproche, tu sais. La pour bientôt.
0: Oh, mais il était super! Il était Oh, il était gentil! Il était infectieux, Jou... il était gentil! Il riait tout le temps, tout le temps! Attendez, Rémi! Ça ne me rappelle rien, ça! Mmh. Le vieux fusil! Je <rire> suis Bon film! quand tu vois le feu, pas tout faire! J'avais complètement oublié celui-là! Allez, go, ça ah. Cinéma Cinéma
3: Quel que soit le montant que tu me demanderas, Rémi, toujours, je dis bien, toujours, le me il pour moi. Ouais, ici,
2: si, c'est... Si. Et je ne sais pas si tu sais, mais une boîte de Sédocard, c'est un médicament pour les gens qui souffrent du cœur. Donc ici, je, je vais foutre une trouille bleue, ce qui me permet d'éviter de gaspiller une
1: balle, tu vois. That's right. We'll be back next week. And I am just getting now that I must have made a joke when I was doing programming. Uh, Next week, we're going to talk about Man Bites Dog. (laughs) So until then, I want to thank my co-hosts, Ian and Tim. So, Ian, what is keeping you busy these days, sir?
3: Uh, Well, you can hear me every month on the Brattle Film Podcast, which I do with the fine folks who run the historic Brattle Theater in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Uh, and you can read me on Letterboxd at Ian Anthony Brownell or on my own blog, The Film 5000 Project at film5000.com.
1: I love you, 5000, Ian.
3: Beautiful man.
1: <laughs> and Tim, what have you been up to?
3: Oh, well, my wife,
2: Agatha, and I have a movie podcast at Cinemaspection. You can find us at www.cinemaspection.com, where I torment her by making her watch all sorts of weird movies that she doesn't want to, and she throws strange stuff at me as well. We've been on a bit of a break, but we're coming back with some Halloween episodes on Cabinet of Dr. Caligari and Dawn of the Dead, which I'm very excited about because that's one of my favorites.
1: Well, thank you so much guys for being on the show. Thanks to everybody for listening. If you want to hear more of me shooting off my mouth, check out some of the other shows that I work on. They are all available at WeirdingWaymedia.com. Thanks especially to our Patreon community. If you want to join the community, visit patreon.com slash projection booth. Every donation we get helps Projection Booth and Dr. Moreau take over the world.